Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Are we starting recording now? Hello? Anybody else there, or is it just me? Alicia? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you now. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I muted myself out. Yeah, just um, can you back that up to the beginning, and we'll get that started? Sure. Who's this? This is Colin. Oh, hi, Colin. The host for Sonia. Who's this? This is Irish. I'm a friend of Sonia's, and uh, we have with us... Uh, another individual whose name I, I forget. Y'all gonna have to forgive my memory. I've had several traumatic brain injuries, and uh, ironically, if it wasn't in long-term storage when I got thumped on the head, then I probably don't have an easy time remembering it. So I might even remember. I might even forget your name, Colin. Well, that's uh, all right. That's my normal mo. So uh, <laughs> no big deal. So are you South Ontario then? No, I, I'm not any part of Staff or Ontario. I'm actually an American, but. Uh, I no, no, I mean, so far as my board goes, are you South Central Ontario? No, no, there's someone else South Central Ontario. I'm South actually Central New York? Yeah, that's me. That, no, no, New York. You're South Central New York? Yep. You got All right, it. Because I want to make sure I'm going to mute everybody else except for you. Well, actually, I don't see any disruptors that are not muted out. Um, but at the moment we get disruptors, I'm going to mute everybody because we've had real problems with them, just so you know, okay? Okay, uh, uh, I'm okay with you know taking it back to you if you want someone else to start too. I just we happen to have no one on and we were just filling the gap with history. So. No, I think it's excellent. I know I know the recording and it's excellent. Um, I wanted to cover some other stuff, but we'll have time. Uh, I just say good evening, everybody, and welcome to this uh, week's talk show. I'm the substitute host for Sonia Patterson. Uh, my name I go by Colin Derrick, and. Um, by all means, I wanted to cover some things which we'll go into in a minute about uh, bringing in action, but I think that perhaps this recording that you've been so kind to share is worthwhile sharing. So we're going to go ahead and jump to that real fast, and um, and we'll go with that. So go ahead. All right. At any point, hit me up. Let me know you want to start your 42 action issue, and, and we'll jump into 83, 4, 5, 6, and 8, and, uh, and have fun with that too. But for now, um, no we were sorry. Go ahead and rock it. Cool. So, to briefly paraphrase, the crown did not want to give up power, and that's hardly surprising. Power is reluctant to give up power, whoever holds it. And um, a lot of people in America, then called the colonies, were really pissed off at the crown, and it was growing pretty much undeniably evident that everybody in the colonies was dissatisfied. Even the people that didn't want war were dissatisfied. And so enough people wanted war enough that they were starting to do stuff about it. And the Crown said, well, hmm, what are we going to do to quell this? And just the same way that we have the left and the right marching foot, you know, step 
toward the same goal. Same thing was going on there, right? They didn't call themselves Republicans and they didn't call themselves Democrats. It was the same power elite, right? So you got left and right working together just under different names. You had people that wanted to officially break off and people that didn't want to officially break off. But under all of it, it was orchestrated by the same people that were controlling things, okay? Now, we'll get into the bar and how that all happened later on. But ultimately, all of this has been done by what amounts to an agent of the crown in some capacity, moving us to, okay, do we want to have people who have favor or tie with England, or do we want to have our own rule here? And much like Canada, there's a, a temporary rule, right? There's a, a localized rule, but ultimately the Vatican owns the crown. The crown owns the East India Trading Company, and the East India Trading Company has a controlling interest over what became the Confederacy, and then later on in 1789, what became the United States of America. So we had the Articles of Confederation from the beginning, right darn near the, the day we gave out the Declaration of Independence, letting them know, hey, you guys, you can go Pakistan, we'll take it from here, thanks, that's very nice. Um, just about right after that, we had the Articles of Confederation. I was just saying the two key words there are constitution, which comes from the constitutor. A constitutor is a detour. And so then the question becomes, well, what's a confederation? Well, what's a federation? A confederation is, depending upon how you look at it, etymologically, if you want to go against or you go with, either way, those two words in conjunction with federation is the a bunch of people who combine together, and, and especially when it's got that con in front of it, confederation is, generally speaking, a bunch of people who are, are together for an illicit or illegal matter, for an illegal intent or purpose, and um, which is remotely different than, than just a federation. But arguing nuances isn't really why I started down this path. I wanted to get the history of what started all this in motion. In the act of becoming the 1789 Charter instead of the Articles of Confederation, we gave up considerably more rights. And by the way, in the 13 years that we had Articles of Confederation, there was no slave in the continent. There was no slave. Those 13 years, we had no slave of any kind. Not three-fifths, not one-third, not whatever. There was no slaves. In 1789, however, the people in the South and, or at least their representatives, right? And, and we all know representatives is not the same as to present oneself as a man. It is very much only a person that can commit the act of representation. And so in 1789, they sent the representatives to Philly to say, hey, look, we want to have slaves, and there's enough of us that we can agree we're sure we're going to vote on it and win. And uh, so they argued that little point, and... That was how we first had slaves, was the United States Constitution, which then allowed people to have three-fifths slaves. And we won't get into the history of slavery, because that's not what I got on the floor either. The point was, the Constitution isn't what we think it is. It is a charter to recognize a debt owed to the crown. Oh, and by the way, part of the terms and conditions for this debt was, this is how we'll treat your people while we're collecting the debt. So along with that, You've got a whole bunch of people now broken into Federalists and Anti-Federalists who wanted to argue with each other with each other over who had what power and what dominion and what rights. 
rights and interests are not the same as dominions and powers. But we'll get into that probably a little later on. The important thing here is the document didn't do what it said it was going to do. Instead, it committed to us that no one can question the debt owed. You'll see this in no uncertain terms. It's one of the rarest things to see in a document of people who are allegedly committing independence to say, we, we won't question any debt to the people that we just rebelled from, which was actually one of the chief reasons that we had a war with them anyways, because they were exacting too much money from us. But that's a little too revealing, and if you say that publicly, you're going to get yourself in some interesting circumstances. So where does that take us from there to here? Okay. If you look at 1812, which was our next big skirmish, you'll notice that just before that incident, there was what we now call the original 13th Amendment, which said that anybody holding any kind of title of nobility can hold no office in any jurisdiction in the land, whether it is a city, a municipality, town, village, a county, a state, a county of any kind, territory, etc. There's none of it having any nobility. And so, which was really curious. It looks all good, fine, well, and dandy, but nobility simply means one who's not under a surety. So, it sounds really fantastic, and for a large number of years, I was all for it. And it would probably have helped us to get rid of certain individuals who are enslaving people even right now in 2016. So, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be there, but when you look at what it really means to be part of the nobility, right, a free baron, a baron of the free lord, or someone who holds dominion over land, is those people who are totally free of any surety, who have no, I won't say allegiance, but they have no obligation to those people in, quote, power, what we now call power. Okay? And that gets more into the dominion and power question. So it really kind of surprises to see this title of nobility having such animus. Why do they want to hide that so much? Why is it even that we have a war just about damn near immediately after we have this virtually unanimous act? When I say virtually unanimous, every single state unanimously agreed. There's one exception, and I think the one exception is Massachusetts. Whatever one is in the Northeast, whichever state that was. It might have been Rhode Island, don't quote me. But whichever one it was, even they had met their Senate and their State Congress, their, what's called an assembly. And they had both met and had unanimously uh, voted to resolve or basically, hey, we all agree we're going to go vote at the federal level and we're going to pass this thing. We're all going to be like, a unanimous accord. And they voted yes. So ultimately, in the spirit and intent of their purpose, it was truly unanimous. They hadn't sent an envoy to D.C. yet, or it wasn't even D.C. yet. It was still Philly. So they hadn't yet sent an envoy to say that, oh, by the way, we're all still going to do this. But they voted on it. So there's records of that. So just about damn near after that vote, we find, hey, look, you know, War of 1812 whole bunches of things are getting attacked. What's getting attacked? Why are so many different libraries of all things to attack? <laughs> not garrisons, not forts, 
Not major military hovels. Nope, 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 nope. Our libraries are getting hit in war. So the libraries that hold the evidence of this original 13th Amendment are what were hit first. And I don't ask anybody to believe a word I'm saying. I highly encourage anyone to go to Google and look it up. But beware, you're only going to be able to do that for so long because Google has admitted publicly they're going to start brandishing these allegedly fake news sites and start removing them from Google. So God knows how long it's going to be before they start taking history sites on that, quote, fake news list and, uh, and attacking them. But for right now, as of the 2nd of December in 2016, as we record, as of right now, you can still find a whole bunch of sites that show exactly, and when I say exactly, I mean photographs of the original signed orders, resolutions, and acts by the respective states and territories that agreed, which ultimately in Kent is every single state except for whichever one it is, whether it's Rhode Island or Massachusetts. And then you can even see that every single one of them in their state and assembly voted for it. So moving along from 1812, the next power play was they wanted to have a, as Alexander Hamilton started, they wanted to have what we would now call a Federal Reserve or what they then called the National Bank. And that national bank was basically, as Mayor Anshel Rothschild says, give me control over a nation's, a nation's monetary policy. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact wording. Uh, give me control over a nation's monetary policy, and I cannot who governs its laws. And uh, so and it might not be Mayor Amschel Rothschild. It might be Amschel Mayor Rothschild. I'm, again, if you just look up Mayor and Amschel and Rothschild and that quote, you'll see whichever order it is, because it's a well-recognized quote. But uh, in any case, and I think Brady quote will even tell you the source of the quote. But so we go from the next power play trying to centralize our finance system. And if you remember, the Constitution even says, balanced weights and measures. How many people go about measuring Federal Reserve notes with a scale? I don't know anybody that does that. That's because they had silver and gold coins, and that was what they were measuring. In fact, the term pieces of eight is because not a lot of people could generally afford to have a full ounce of silver, but most people could afford to have an eighth of an ounce of silver or an eighth, a piece of eight. And so when you divide that ounce into eight pieces, that was a lot more doable. People could generally have that in their pocket. And so this is why you needed a purse with purse strings to hold all of those little pieces of metal, which would otherwise tear a hole in your pocket and get lost. Okay? So this is where that purse comes in. And so we have a little struggle with kicking the, the fox out of the hen house of our monetary policy. Alexander, or, uh, What's his name? The one that caused the Trail of Tears. Uh, it's not Hamilton. By God, I will route you out. What's his name? Uh, in any case, one of our presidents, his name, I, I have a brain freeze at the moment. Are you uh, talking about Jackson? That's it. Alexander, is it Alexander something Jackson? Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson comes up with the idea to get rid of this 
whole gang trying to stall our, our powers by creating this centralized bank. And one of the greatest things he ever did was to get rid of the power of the bank and put it back into the square shoulders of Congress and make them do their job. And uh, so that was, that was probably the very best thing. In fact, if you asked him what he wanted on his gravestone, despite being a general, despite being a president, he, he did a, a lot of great things, okay? Um, I personally, I have a love-hate relationship with him because of the Trail of Tears, which was a vile thing. It was one of the most vile things we've ever done. And that was also by his hand. So don't go quoting him as a saint. But one of the best things he ever did was to get the money powers out of having a national bank. So the next time we have a major power struggle like that also was about the centralizing of our, our monetary policy, and that's with Lincoln. But not a lot of people went along with that idea. In fact, so many people disagreed with it because along with it, like all of our other poor spending we have in today's day, right, along with that little caveat went, oh, by the way, and all of you states that weren't even here when we had the revolution, you also have to help us cover the debt. So, as is almost all of the policies in America that become famous, it was over debt. So, the debt then being argued or disputed by those in the South was something all of them unanimously wanted to avoid, except for, of course, those people who were part of the territories that became states or the colonies that became states. And so we had a little dispute called the Civil War, not over can a black man be free, because in Lincoln's own words, if I could have done it over again without setting free a single slave, I would have done so. And again, that's a paraphrase, because I don't know exactly the verbatim. But again, it's well documented, and Brainy Quote, I'm sure, has it. So, and that's BrainyQuote.com. So uh, if you look in that phrase, you know, play with the words in the cross-reference, you'll find the quote. And what happened there with a lot of people, when I say a lot of people, I mean literally all of Congress. Leaving Congress, Lincoln said, oh, no, you didn't. And he went and got the marshals to literally go round them up like they were Japanese during the 1940s. So Congress, the rulers of the, the representation, the delegation, of the states was forced at gunpoint, not unlike King John in 1215 and 1225, and they were ordered at gunpoint back into the Congress. And at that point, it became the what we now call the facto corporation. It was a corporation before, guys. It just wasn't as blatant. So now we have this new corporation, and one of the first things he does is the 14th Amendment. Now, in court, and this is going to be pertinent to you who study 18 and 42, in court, they can't do a thing to you, nothing, zero, without also providing a remedy for what they're doing. Now, if they didn't tell you and you didn't ask, they don't have to tell you. But they're not allowed to do anything to you. If you specifically ask for the remedy and you know what you're asking, they have to tell you, right? And I'll get into that, and I'll give you specifics on that in a minute, but we still have a tiny bit of history left to cover. So after the 14th Amendment was established, which, by the way, 
it is itself a doorway to that remedy. But we'll get into 14A1 and 14A2 later. Just remember that. That's going to become part of your remedy. Okay. So now, I know, I know, I know, most people in the Patriot or Truth or whatever you want to call the freedom movement think it's the most evil thing in the world. And indeed, 14 is not one of the best things that man has ever written. But aside from being as evil as it is, it also has that caveat. And we will get into that caveat if you wish. So <clears throat> after Lincoln, you have a bunch of what we would now call market manipulation. And the whether you're going to call it nice, whether you're going to call it Dow Jones, the same chain, the market in that day leading up to 1913, specifically 1907, and the tail end of the century just prior to that, there were major blatant caught manipulations. Uh, and when I say caught, I mean congressmen pointed it out in the floor of Congress. So it's not like it was just a conspiracy theory. The yeah, let me add a little bit there. Uh, there's at least, uh, I have in my hot little hand, at least five cases where they admitted to manipulating the LIBOR of recent, um, and there's actually five cases against them where they paid millions of dollars. So even though they weren't tried and convicted in that way, they still admitted it. Nice. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. I mean, it, it helps really solidify the point that this is a recurring cycle. And all you have to do is pay attention, and you'll start seeing that cycle recur. A century ago, half a century ago, right now. So thank you for that. I didn't know. Um, and most people on the call are probably really familiar with Woodrow Wilson and Edward Mandel House. And if you aren't, you really need to Google them, specifically the uh, shadow quote. And the... And I, I won't even try to regurgitate that page-long quote, but it's, it's, it's a doozy and it's worth reading. In essence, he basically says we're going to have a social scheme, and if you're not part of the scheme, you're going to get screwed. If you are part of the scheme, you're going to be slaved, and nobody will have any idea that it's even happened, and if they do, well, we'll have plausible deniability. That's it in a nutshell. And... So not only does he do this, Wilson signs the Federal Reserve Act, Federal Reserve takes power, and as of that point, there is no longer the power, the control that our Congress used to have. Um, it, is, it is basically gone, written by the stroke of a pen, to people who will then dictate, literally, who, who by fiat uh, dictate, determine what our policies will be. So um, to, to emphasize why that's important, let me just give a tiny little bit on economics because it really will show why that point was probably even more important than what happened with Lincoln. Okay. The linchpin in 13 is what stopped them from making money out of thin air? Okay. Before, remember we were talking about pieces of eight and ounces and silver and gold? At this point, in 13, none of that happened anymore. They started having this ability by people who had absolutely no recourse. There was no control over the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve 
of any kind. They were a for-profit agency that had zero oversight. So all of what we think matters with the people governing things and representatives and senators and presidents and uh, whatever you want to call assemblymen or state senators, all of that went out the window because now they could do whatever they want with their money. And it is theirs now, right, as of 13. So basically their fiat, having created things out of, of air, literally thin air, stole away from us the very limited government that we had reduced to only 19 authorized actions, right? It was stolen from us because in Article 1, Section 10, Article 1, Section 8, we're told those two are what held the whole apparatus together. Without it, we were nothing but serfs on a plantation that they control the a fiat, unlawful, and ungodly theft system of paper money, backed by nothing, no silver, no gold, no platinum, no anything. Oh, feathers would have had more value than what we have now. Okay? But understand that when the, when the money supply, and, and you really all of you need to look up the difference between money of account versus money of exchange, and you can probably find that in a PDF by that same title. But the nutshell of that is when money had substance of something, whether it was a marble, a feather, a silver, a gold piece, whatever it was, not just some random imagination, then one of the recourses that the people had was to just withhold your taxes, and that would shut the whole government down. Because if they didn't have, before 1913, if the people decided, well, you're not going to get my money, well, who would pay the people that were doing the enslaving to march over to Philly or D.C. or wherever they, you know, your respective state capital is? Nothing. No man goes to work for free, especially not to enslave their fellow man, right? So if you held, at that point, up to 1913, if you held your taxes, you shut the government off. You did, the people. After 1913, it didn't matter how many of us unanimously decided to do that, they could still print more. Let that sink in. Believe it or not, that's even more powerful than FDR. Don't get me wrong. FDR is a satanic little bastard, and he should try for what he did to us but this is even worse. And Woodrow Wilson on his deathbed repented of it and said, I should never have done that. Okay, so FDR didn't do anything like that, but Wilson, when he did what he did, he realized it. Only you have to really dig hard to even find his repentance, albeit a deathbed repentance. You have to even dig hard to find it because they don't want you realizing that he made the mistake. Okay? So we could all just quit playing, quit paying, and We'd be no more part of the game, more part of the theft. They'd, but now they print up their, what they need, and they, they thumb their noses at us. And that's why 13 is so important. But after 13, the next major involvement is in the 20s, in the 30s, you had another false lead-up to basically devalue exactly what they wanted to buy so that when they bought it, it would be pennies on the dollar or less. and then all of that redistribution of wealth that we call the Great Depression, which is no longer the Great Depression. The last eight years have stolen more money than even the Great Depression did. And we still, right now in 2016, have less people employed relative to percentage of the population than we did then. And more people are on welfare, and I don't just mean on food stamps. I mean every kind of welfare than we did in the Great Depression. So it was no longer, it is no longer in truth the Great Depression. It is the second or the lesser Great Depression. This, what we're living in right now in 2016, is truly the Great Depression. But I'll get into that numbers 
later, and I can show you that later if you want. It's actually less relevant than changing our status and holding their feet to the fire, so I'd rather get back to that. FDR, a lot of you know, was a bastard, and I don't just mean because he was a Democrat, okay? Although, hey, if you want to draw your conclusions, great, but there's a lot more that's worse in if anybody wants to accuse him than merely being a progressive Democrat, which he definitely and most certainly was. The, the issue with FDR was FDR wanted to pull all of this into a system by which he could control who had what rights and, more importantly, the people in power would be able to watch all of this from closed doors without anybody realizing what was really going on and, and without the people knowing that they had had their souls stolen right, from out, right out from under them. You know, the, Rome had done this thousands of years prior, but as is the usual course in history, if it's not extravagant, people won't pay attention to it. So although this has all been done before, right, this is no new thing. Rome has done this countless times. Okay, it happened in Babylon, it happened in Persia, it happened in Syria. Uh, before there was the, the Syria, we now know there was Assyria. And I won't get into all that because that truly is ancient history. Again, the focus here tonight should be really on changing our status. So I'll get back to FDR. Okay? FDR, by his direct involvement in the whole birth certificate game, and, and no, it's not a theory, folks. I could show you everything I'm going to say about this. So you might want to take notes because this is pertinent. And undoing this part is actually how to get your status back. And if you have done this, if you do what I'm about to suggest, and none of this is legal advice, by the way, let's talk about what legal means. If you look up the Encyclopedia Britannica of 1893, the definition of legal is the undoing of God's law. Well, what is God? The grantor of dominion. Who is the original grantor of dominion? Who created all life as we know it? That is God, okay? So do I have any intent whatsoever, any purpose in undoing God's law? Zero, nil, nothing. But for those people who want to be belligerent, belligerent means from the line, or belligerent, from the line of Bell. Well, who is Bell? Bell is Baal. Baal is that same Moloch bastard all the way back from Scripture that started enslaving people. And although I'm going to reference Scripture a few times from tonight, it has nothing to do with getting you to go to any church, synagogue, mosque, anything else. But it will show you how deep this, I would call it mystery, because it is Babylon's mystery. But it's a lot deeper than going down the fertility rabbit hole. Fertility rabbit hole referring to Easter. And uh, so getting back to the, the hard science of law that people who may be atheistic or agnostic want to get to, we'll specifically go into a little more detail to satisfy that group. And uh, and after I see the other part about birth certificates, you'll, you'll actually appreciate the, the depth of how this sinister plot goes. And it is sinister. It is probably the most nuanced, certainly the most pervasive theft and enslavement of man that's ever been. So where to begin? I started down this path studying a man called George Gordon. I took all the classes from George. And I was intent, even on taking his 42 class, and, uh, which is why it pertains to tonight. And George 
is a brilliant man. God bless him. He is he is now passed on, so may he rest in peace. But he is he is a brilliant man. You can still probably find now people who have uh, had his classes and are willing to trade it for another. If you have other classes and other things that may, people may want, I'm sure you can find that. Um, you can certainly ask his widow, and his widow would gladly sell courses probably at a great discount relative to what they were going for. He wanted a golden double eagle for every class. Yes, that's right, a golden double eagle. Um, and I was silly enough to pay that price. In any case, it didn't do enough. It didn't do enough. And so I continued my search. I quite literally have put $33,000 into various classes, real estate classes, law classes, equity classes, and tying these together in and how to really and truly get a status correction that will let them accept, recognize, and acknowledge and memorize those three terms. I'm going to give you a series of words tonight that are in groups. And when I give you those groups, you should really do well to, to write them down. So I'll repeat. To accept or acceptance, to recognize or recognition, and to acknowledge or acknowledgement. <clears throat> those are three, three key words in equity. And we'll get to that again. But the, uh, the next part of my journey in finding out how to undo all this is to study from two men, uh, one who was touted by the, the general counsel of the World Central Bank. His name is Christopher Strunk. And, uh, and he knew a lot. I and mean, when I say a lot, I mean a tremendous, damn tremendous amount of code, statutes, every kind of fiction. And the man... To have been a historian of that caliber is truly, I mean, reputable. It's, it's astounding he knows what he knows about exactly all of the, the codes and how they have to undo all that. But if you continue to quote code, if you quote the statute, then you're citing it as your authority. And I, I did promise I'd get back to the specifics, but, but even you people who are atheists and agnostic need to listen to this even though it sounds religious. It has nothing to do with religion. I have not to do with Ray, Ra, whatever you want to call him, or his legions. Why do they call him legion? For we are many. Okay? And so this has nothing to do with religion. But I'm still going to tell you what the Messiah himself said when he was brought to his three pieces of trial from the synagogue to Rome and back to the synagogue. And they asked him who he was. Right? And they said, is it true you're saying that you're the son of God and, and that uh, you know, you, you're the king and, and the king of kings deserves all your praise and glory and all, all this other thing? And they throw a whole litany of charges at him. And to that he said, so say you. So, which is basically, hey, you said it, not me. I didn't make that claim. Okay. So in, a, in other words, George Gordon would have said that was a non-assumption. That, uh, that was an averment with an abatement tied into it. Okay. Look up these words, averment, averment, A-V-E-R-M-E-N-T, averment, and abatement, like to abate something, which is also another word you should look up. That's alpha, bravo, alpha, tango, echo, to abate. So look up those words, averment and abatement. And that ultimately, oh, and I mentioned non-assumpsit. That's non, N-O-N, dash. Don't make an ass out of you and me, but end it with a sit. Assumpsit, A-S-S-U-M, like Mike, S, like Sam, I-T, Assumpsit. Look that one up. So 
him saying this basically said, hey, you say so, not me. That wasn't my claim. And uh, he who bears the burden bears the proof of proving that burden of claim, right? So, and, and that's a maxim that, believe it or not, existed even then. So thousands of years old. It's a good maxim to memorize. So basically, that's what he was implying without saying, and this is really good to know, how to use maxims without citing them, because some maxims are maxims of commerce, and some maxims are maxims of equity. But only the maxims of equity stem from Scripture, which is the true authority. Believe it or not, yes, even you atheists need to recognize this just until the end of this call where you can look all this stuff up. Just bear with me and listen. So when they ask him, okay, well, so say you, well, who are you then? I am who I am, the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh unto the Father saved by me. Now, while this may look and seem like it is a spiritual declaration of being the only begotten son of the king of kings and the father in the heavens, I'm going to tell you what it really meant in court at that time. I am who I am. Notice that he said who and not that. Now, some people have a version of scripture that says that. I would highly encourage you to go find yourself a Hebrew, not even Greek, go back older, get yourself a Hebrew translation with what's called an interlinear scripture. And look at the actual word because it's not that. I'm about to tell you the reason it's not that. Because a that is a thing. A who is a man. And a thing has no dominion. There's no power, there's no right, and there's no interest that a thing can hold. Your coffee table can't go to court. Your coffee table can't make a claim. But a who, on the other hand, a who. Now that's someone that can have their own dominion, power, right, and interest. And a who has the ability to take you to court. So he says, I am who I am. Okay, now that's why he says, I am who I am. Next thing out of his lips is the way, which, by the way, you can still find people saying the way, even in the far east of Eastern Asia, whether it's China, Mongolia, whatever you want to call it. And all the way out there, you'll still find them with these massive stellas, which basically means a, a man-sized chunk of granite or other stone which would be the equivalent of an Egyptian uh, scroll, but a, in, in some stone. And in those stoas, they cite their holy scriptures as the way. Why? In those same stoas that have these things written into them, they are in the alignment of east and west. But damn near all of the rest of Asia has their buildings in alignment with north and south because there's a physical benefit to letting the magnetism of earth heal your body, and they knew that. Even thousands of years ago, they knew that. This isn't New Age stuff, folks. So why would the other people who had these stellas orient their buildings east and west? That gets back to Scripture. But that's actually why I'm referencing that little nugget right there, because it's going to bring us back to Scripture. The way recognizes the body of covenant, treaty, or law to which you are subject. So when they ask him, who I am, I am who I am, the way. He's saying, I am who I am, and my body to whom I am subject is the way. He's referencing scripture by the shortest abbreviation that's ever been known. So after he says, I am who I am, the way, he says the truth. Why does he say the truth? You can't possibly be the truth and a fiction at the same time. It's, it's called the doctrine of exclusion. Look that up. There's lots of case law on it. I highly recommend you look up anything on it. Anything. Doctrine of exclusion. 
Now, the doctrine of exclusion says if you choose one and there's only two choices, you just gave away the other choice. So, if, for example, the doctrine of exclusion says you can go to common law or you can go to equity, but you can't do both. Okay? And if you choose common law, you just gave up your right to equity. Bear in mind, there's a schism. There's a large, since the 30s, thank you FDR, there is a schism between true equity. Now, true has a whole bunch of adjectives. True equity, pure equity, live equity, ex- exclusive equity, and my favorite, non-statutory equity. It's all the same damn thing. The alternative is the statutory equivalent of equity. Okay? They conjoined equity and common law into one jurisprudence. So if you say equity, I guarantee you they'll assume, presume, opine, or take some form of silent judicial notice that you mean statutory equity if you didn't outright state, no, 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 I don't have any intent. I have no intent on statutory equity. I specifically ask, wish, order, and require the non-statutory equity. And because it is a special, private, strictly confidential matter, it really, in truth, needs to be in a special, private, and strictly confidential setting, i.e. not in the public. So if it's in the public, then they can treat you as the public. And we'll get into that in a minute. Thank you, FDR. FDR, and from here on, the rest of this talk is going to be about why FDR did what he did. FDR brought about a whole slew of things. Now, in all fairness, he didn't begin the Trading with the Enemy Act. That goes back to 1917. But he did amend it with the Emergency Bank Relief Act, okay? And the combination, right? We were start, starting to talk about non-statutory equity. Why that's important is because the public U.S. citizen, who is the surety debtor in commerce, in truth, the crown is the surety, but they want us to think it's us, okay? And so the debtor in commerce does not have the power that a surety does. Remember that because we might come back to that tonight, but that might be a nuance for another call too. It was created on a state level via the filed certificate of live birth. That's, that's the boy actually popping out a mom. That's what the certificate of live birth is. And then three days later, or in some cases longer than three days, but the earliest in America that happens is three days afterward, is they file a birth certificate registration. And then Later on, eventually, the Social Security contract, and after that, the driver's license, and then when you file your own W-2 or W-4, W-9, etc., we'll get into all that. But all of those, those are all hypothecation events. That's when they make something out of commerce that had no intent whatsoever to do with business, or if business, it was never meant to be monetary or commercial related. So what he did then with this new state-level certificate of live birth, they seized and now calling us the booty of war, they seized us as the booty of war by the Pope's de facto military government. Okay. FDR turned in the 6th of March of 33 by proclamations 2038, 2039, and later 2040, which were confirmed by Congress on 9 March via the Emergency Bank Relief Act and brought the first world war, the Trading with the Enemy Act, inland or literally on land jurisdiction instead of commercial jurisdiction of sea. And you might hear Anna talk about that. And by Anna, I mean Anna von Reitzinger, who shortens her name to Anna von Reitz when she writes. <laughs> Anna von Reitz when she writes. In any case, um, the two different jurisdictions, land and sea, have massively different powers. And, and again, we'll get into dominion and powers 
perhaps I should have started with that because those are two fairly large pieces. Dominion in Genesis 1:26, you're going to see, and even 27, you're going to see the, the original grantor of dominion. You're going to see God, Yahuwah, give to man his dominion. And man had dominion over the earth and over every creeping thing. And it goes, of course, over you know, the animals and the plants and the, and the blah, 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 blah. But the point being, he had dominion. It didn't say he gave him permission. It didn't say he gave him liability. It didn't say he gave him the ability to have a license. In fact, he says you shouldn't have anything to do with licentiousness. But what he did give us, the first moment man stepped foot onto the scene, was dominion. So remember that word, dominion and powers, because they are not the same as rights and interests, although they want you to only focus on rights and interests. Because if you focus on rights and interests, you might forget about dominions and powers. We'll get back to that. We will. Or we will in another call, because it's damn important. So in, in bringing the process to inland, it now applied to any person within the United States, within the United States. That's the federally owned enclave, right? So now we, the people, have become the enemy and rebel. Now, whether you call it a public U.S. citizen, whether you call it a surety, whether you call it a subject, as the England uh, still to this day does, okay, the, the attached uh, man has three different levels to his jurisdiction. The first, in truth, and only in truth, because remember, a person is no truth. A person is always a fiction. In truth, you are a first world, noble, noble, savage. What does savage mean? Savage means to have no civilization. What does civilization mean? To be civil, or one of the Roman civili, means to have had a Roman death. So now you become a decedent. Well, a savage is not so murdered or killed, like the children, right? So the first world is your, the boy popping out of the mom, okay? That's, that's first world. Once you have a certificate of live birth commercially created, now you've just lost your first estate, okay? Now you're brought into the second world as a public citizen, actually private. It's going to become public with the birth certificate. So you go to, I, I misspoke just a second ago. So you become a private person with a certificate of live birth. But then once that's cured and perfected and birth certificate registration is filed, now it's become the, the third world public citizen. So the first, I mean, firstborn, freeborn, remember that freeborn, we'll come back to that. When you're freeborn, you are a noble savage or first world tribal signatory, tribal, because it's not yet civilly like Rome. The second step is to become a private person in the second world. That's the certificate of live birth. The third step is the public third world and or citizen and or subject that is finalized by the public birth certificate registration. Sometimes it's called birth certificate file. It really depends on what country you're in. Here in America, the terms are certificate of live birth and birth certificate registration. So now, ultimately, you have the noble savage lumped into the private citizen or private national lumped into the public U.S. citizen. So you go from this true dominion, true power, without rights and without interest even, and when you're born. You, had, you, know, you had no need for rights because you had full dominion. 
And you lose that dominion and power once you become a commercial event into the personal or fictional realm. And there, you still had rights and interests. But when you lose the second world's rights and interests and you enter the thirds, now you have none. You have exactly what is dictated to you. And if they think that they can beguile you in thinking you only have what we say, while saying, in fact, to themselves behind closed doors, they don't have the ability to do anything we don't want. That's exactly the status we find ourselves, unless you start rebutting presumptions and challenging the jurisdictions of these fictions. So the original de jure federal citizenship, which was uh, secured initially by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 of the Constitution for, not of, for the United States of America from for March 1789 through 28 July 1868, that were broadened, then made, quote, national, instead of, remember, we, there was a whole bunch of nations there. So which nation would be the question? But after Lincoln, it became a national, right? And when it doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what creed, doesn't matter any of that nonsense that divides us, especially if you look at the media that wants us to all hate each other. Because if we're all fighting each other, we can't fight the people who are doing this to us. So... That turned the said de jure constitutional national citizenship, or what in truth is nationality, through the first section, with what I was calling earlier 14A or 14A. So now it's the Constitution for the United States of America from July 28, 1868, even to the present, or even to the present, excuse me. So where to go now? Well, we have talked about ancient law. Sir Henry Sumner Maine has a great topic on that from 1864. I highly recommend um, Phelps. That's to say Eric John Phelps. He cites it in his works. Um, in fact, he goes through a whole bunch of fictions. I would tell you you don't need the fictions. I would tell you the fictions are a distraction, right? But and you're entitled do whatever you want to do. I'm not giving you a directive in any kind. I'm just telling you what I have discovered. What you do with it is on your own. But Phelps goes over the privileges and immunities of Article 4 to uh, is your uh, American citizenship. And he'll go over the 1868 Article 4, Section 2, broadening powers. And then he'll go through the slaughterhouse cases with you, and 83 U.S. 36 from 1873, and He'll go through Jones and Goodwell, and he'll cover the Congress giving absolute power to legislate the territories, which is really what your state's on, by the way. Hey, um, Iris? Yo. Yeah, is that what I call you, is Iris? That's fine. That's great. Okay. Um, I was going to do a show on the 42-1983, and I kind of set it aside for a while. How long do you need to get to the meat of solutions and possibly give links or things for people to look up and then we can have you come back on or we can do more discussing on it on the practical side? Sure. Um, five more minutes to go over the history of how to tie this together to your making a claim um, because the history actually will kind of give a little bit of guidance on where with equity to... Okay. Try to keep in mind that I'm interested in solutions. Knowing the problem I get that. I get is that. fantastic. <laughs> right. I, I, I fully agree with you. Uh, I wish more people had that mindset, sir. I got you. Uh, I appreciate it. All right, then. I'll give you another 10 minutes, then. How's that? That would be more than fine. 
So All right, great. Uh, I'll, I'll try to go low faster. Uh, because I think that they are important for the mindset. Uh, I do wish to honor what Phelps' work was, which was a lot more than merely Gordon. Um, he covers, uh, I think I covered ancient law with Sir Henry Sumner Main on legal fiction, equity, and legislation. The important thing there is equity, legal fiction, legal fiction equity, and legislation. He'll cover the Nine March Rome coup d'etat and Senate Report Number 93-549, which goes over, that's 1973, by the way, the Emergency Powers, and he'll also go over the Emergency War Powers Act, right? But uh, he references the CSR report for the, the National Emergency Powers, the four primary presidential proclamations. Uh, I think I covered three of them, 2038, 2039, and 2040. Hoover and Allison, the three definitions of the United States, which are codified at 28 U.S.C. 3002, getting them in written print, no matter whose case it is, whether it's common law or equity, getting them to make on the record who it is that they're making the claim that you are, which one of those three U.S. citizens. That's important because if you don't know who they're saying you are, how can you build a defense? So no matter whose case it is, equity or common law, they have the burden for proving their claim. If they can't even say what they're seeing you as, how can you build a defense? So even if it's 18, 42, whatever it is, you need to make them define who they think that you are. And, uh, and that's down again. Oh, 20, you see, let's slow, yeah, okay, now we're talking some, some, to me, good meat. Go ahead and slow down a little bit and cover that a little bit more. You can review it, redo it, because I think now you're talking something that's extremely important, what I call nipping it in the bud. So sure, sure. That sure. So um, if you reread Hooven, that's H-O-O-V-E-N, and Allison Co. versus Evett, E-V-A-T-T, right? Both that case and later codified, uh, the case is from 1945, and it was later codified in the U.S. Code, the 28 U.S.C. 3002. There's a, there are the three popular definitions. Believe it or not, there's even a fourth uh, definition of the United States. Well, each one of those definitions means a citizen of that respective United States, one of those four, means you're going to have different dominions, powers, rights, and interests in each one of them. And because they are the claimant, a.k.a. prosecutor, a.k.a. plaintiff, and they're bringing you the power of saying, oh, well, we're the AG, we're the DA, we're the whatever. Okay, great. That's who you are, but who do you say I am, right? Because who they say you are will, by definition, if you allow them and you agree to their definition, it will put you in a different jurisdiction. So you need to know, A, what they've said you are, and then B, you need to know where you really are so that you can say, no, 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 no. I had no intent. I had no knowledge. And I certainly was not, and you might want to write these three terms down, knowingly, willingly, and intelligibly. I'll say again, knowingly, willingly, and intelligibly. I didn't knowingly, willingly, and intelligibly volunteer to become that that you define as one of those four, right? So how can you then say, I am subject to it? I, I was born thinking I was a Delawarean, for example. You might be a Pennsylvanian, another guy from a Texan, right? Each of them from a different republic and or commonwealth. So a lot of people want to get distracted over this whole thing with the gold fringe and Army Regulation 84, or excuse me, 840-10. But it's not about Title IV, which covers the flag. That is just showing that it's, it's a, not even admiralty, excuse me. That just show, covers 
that it's the executive's administration. And why that's important? Because the executive's administration only covers the U.S. citizen that they define as that public U.S. citizen surety. If you're not the public citizen, then that whole regulation, 84, or say it again, 84, it's not 84, 840-10, 840-10. So if you're not under 840-10, and you're not under the public U.S. citizen surety, then they need to say who you are. Now, the reason that comes back into place, and the people that you're going to start seeing this really uh, show a lot of case law is the Journal Society of 1994 and a book of the hundreds. That's the book of the hundreds. They show a whole bunch of cases. Uh, probably the most famous is Randy Lee, where he really defined who he was instead of letting someone else define it. Okay? And he didn't allow them to say he was representing himself or representing himself in court. Right? He simply said he was there presenting himself by special ministerial visitation, not by any appearance, whether general or special, but by special ministerial visitation. And that's important. You might want to write that down. And so in the court case, at least as a defendant, and really in truth, you're not the defendant, you're a respondent. And you're only in a respondent insofar as you're responding to their claim. But you should, or at least I would, I can't tell you what to do. I would myself bring forward my own special private claim and bring it to the chambers so that no one can possibly assume that it's in the public and say, look, I have no interest in commingling the public jurisdiction that you claim that I am with the private, which I truly am, because by their fruit shall you know them. When you take your case to the private, in my case, I literally walked to the living room of the man's home who was a judge so that there was no possible way in hell under the sun Anyone could possibly say it had public business. I literally went to his living room. I knocked on his door, spoke to the man-to-man. Remember that, man-to-man. Okay, so you can speak to a judge man-to-man or a chancellor in chambers, but the important thing is to, by their fruit shall you know them. Let your actions marry up with your words, but your acts and your deeds be the same. Okay, and so when you show that whether you're going to call it abatement, an averment, not a subset, whatever you want to make your action, okay, make sure you define you. And I should actually clarify the word you. The word you is a plural formalism. It means me and someone else. So I would say, well, I can redefine my own terms. I am the spirit that lives within my flesh. So those are two different things. That's my definition of plural. I have no intent whatsoever to say, myself, the man, and an office. Because to the best of my knowledge, I never knowingly, willfully, intelligibly became an officer in your surety corporation. So I am not subject to the laws of being your employee. Right? I'm, to the best of my knowledge, I was only a national. I didn't mean to become an employee in your corporation. And an employee is subject to that executive administration we mentioned. Right? So to your case, whether it's 42, 18, common law, equity, whatever it is, Letting them define you is the first mistake. Changing that definition and saying, I've never seen any man show good cause that I knowingly, willfully, and intelligibly chose or volunteered to become that thing that you're saying that I am. Okay? So now, 
it doesn't matter in any way um, what they're defining it as as if it's not true, okay? Because if it's not something you concur with, then it has no power over you. It's just a false claim. Unless you've done something to someone else that other witnesses can watch. Like if I go and sock you in the face, there's going to be a witness that watched me punch you. Okay? That's nothing I can just disagree my way out of. But where most of us on this call are not talking about something that a, a belligerent act of war harmed with a wrong or loss someone else by trespass to cause an injury. In fact, we're all talking usually, but generally speaking, we're, we're most of us talking about infractions and violations and these other things that only an employee of their corporatism is subject to obey. So, but I never knew that anybody else was assuming, presuming, or making a silent judicial notice that I was subject to it. And so all of us really in truth need to redress what these assumptions are in, any, in whatever your case is. Again, if your case is common law, it doesn't matter. Your case is equity, it doesn't matter. You have to go through and speak to the man and say, look, this lunacy, you saying all these various assumptions, I don't know anything about it. So uh, I had no knowledge, which means it's unknowing, unwillful. It wasn't my will. I had no intent to do that. And, and we'll get back to will in a minute because you should give them a copy of your will and your will should say what you will and what you won't tolerate. Okay? If you haven't done that, it's far more important than this fee schedule idea people throw about. But uh, that's definitely another call. So the, the major presumptions, and, and uh, Franco Collins came up with the first 12. There's actually more like two dozen. But uh, I'll go over the first 12 because Frank has made it public. Um, the presumption that they hold that you're in the public record, right? The presumption that any matter brought before their court is for public record only when it's presumed by a member of their private bar guild that that same matter is a business matter of theirs, right? Unless you openly rebuke, rebut, or reject statings clearly on the record, or at least it's not on the record for common law, then privately in the chambers for equity, okay? Just whatever, whatever way you go, be consistent. So go merging common law inside of the chambers or he'll kick you right back out to the public. Okay? If you're in the public, don't try to mix up equity because you'll say you're a double-minded man and that you need to have someone treat you as a guardian and a ward. And because of you being a guardian or a ward, they'll take the property custodian, uh, which is in the hands of the AG vis-a-vis -vis the president, um, and they'll just assume that they can tell you what to do again. So whichever way you go, know who you are, know what you choose to claim, and stay consistent with that claim. So whether it's the public record presumption or public service, yes, it's distinct than public record. Public service is a presumption that they've all sworn this solemn, secret, absolute oath to their guild, then act as a public agent of the government, or what we call public officials, making additional oaths of public office that deliberately contradict that oh. same private... Say again. Sorry. Um, the, the public service basically assumes conflicting oaths, okay? And so you have to rebuke that as well. I won't describe them. I'm just going to list them so you can look them up. Um, the next one is the public oath itself. So we've gone from public record to public service, public service to public oath, immunity, which even Jorge Bergoglio quote Francis and Ratzinger agree 
that there is no more immunity. Okay, whether or not they deserve it by their acts or whatever, that's before. The Pope has removed immunity because too many people were being injured. You simply have to recognize that, at least insofar as you're still under the Pope. Unless you go over to one of the tribes that is pre-Vatican, whether that's someone in Africa or Karen A. McDonald's over in Canada, if you aren't part of a tribe that existed before the Vatican, you're under the Vatican. You just don't know it. So you have to recognize that he took away their corporate immunity because that's one of the biggest ways that they get away with all this bullshit. Excuse my language. So removing the public record, removing, when I say public record, I mean removing the presumption or assumption of the public record, the public service, the public oath, the immunity, the summons, um, whether it's a defendant, juror, witness, whatever, because that leads into guilt, and we'll get into guilt. But then there's the presumption of custody, the presumption of the court of guardians, which I kind of hinted at about getting into the ward and the custody, the custodial guardianship. Okay? They see themselves as the court of guardians. We have to rebut that as well. The court of trustees, you have to know which trustee. Remember, there's two different birth certificates. There's a certificate of live birth, and there's a birth certificate registration. The difference is, in fact, we are the, the birth certificate beneficiary of the certificate of live birth. And the trustee is only when you can say, I've merged both titles. Both of those documents are a title. But if you don't know that they are a title, you can't merge the title. But you do that in something called extinguishment, which is only something you can do in equity. Well, I should say with equity. Okay, so getting back to the, the 12 presumptions before I forget, it's actually more than that, but the franks that I don't mind saying publicly are, are the, the follows. The presumption of government that acts as two different roles, the executor and the beneficiary. Really, in truth, you should say that you're the beneficiary in so far as their presumption that they're the beneficiary, because they're not. They're truly acting as the executor when they open up that trust estate, but they're, the, they're not the beneficiary. Okay? We are, so we rebut that presumption. The, um, the executor de son tort, that's executor, same spelling, D-E space son, S-O-N, space tort, T-O-R-T, executor de son tort. We rebut that one as well. We go from there to the incompetence, because yes, they presume you're incompetent. And um, beyond that, they, they even, yes, literally, they presume you're guilty. So we have to rebut all of those. There's, there's more, and I could literally make another whole call on only those presumptions that they lie about or assume falsely about us. But uh, you asked for specifics on what to do in your claim. Well, rebutting them is the specific. If you don't rebut, rebuke, re, re, rebuke, rebut, reject, and deny all of those in your claim, they will assume them, especially if it's in the public. Now, you might get away with simply saying, I've never seen a man show cause that I was and fill in the blank, right? And you can put that in paperwork and tender it to them with equity and say, I, I stand on my affidavit or affirmation. And I, furthermore, I say nothing. Right? So however you wish to stylize your claim, be consistent, give it to them. Make sure you rebut those presumptions. Those presumptions have power over you if you acquiesce to them by not responding, by not answering to those presumptions you give it power. So now you asked about the statutory side. That's going to be something I'm going to let you finish your own call on. And in, in that, I'll, I'll 
basically on the floor right now because I would say it's good to know 18 1983, 
is, I used to say a mutual blessing, but mutually beneficial. Now, it also, when it, the term lawful denotes that you cannot create, enter, or enforce any contract that harms another, correct? That's the ideal. All right. Well, it's not By ideal. Law, no, no, I, I agree with you. I, I hear you, your tent. I, I'm saying they lie about it by these fictions, and they say that the fiction now has those power by such lies as Citizens United. I hear your intent, and I agree with you. We are of one accord. Good. So the simple fundamental principle is you cannot create anything. Okay, first of all, let's, let's start from the beginning. I cannot harm you. You cannot harm me. Well, I you cannot. can, but there's going to be compensation to pay afterwards. Right, exactly. When I say cannot, it means that it's basically unlawful, that there are ramifications right. for doing so. It's an offense. Sure, it's an order. sure. absolutely. Okay, so uh, that means that I cannot create something that harms you, and I cannot authorize somebody else to harm you. Agreed. Okay. So this is very simple. If I cannot harm you... I also cannot create a contract or allow a contract that would harm me because I'm somebody as well. Therefore, when well, somebody says, let me, let me, let me finish a, a thought, okay? Uh, so it's a very simple concept that any time somebody claims that there was some sort of consent or contract, trust, or anything else that causes me to be less than what I am today, whether it's status, free, liberties, uh, rights, privileges, I don't care what it is. Anything that diminishes my standing, capacity, etc., is in and of itself void, ab initio, from the beginning, because you cannot sure. diminish anyone else, nor by somebody standing and not rebutting the presumption, although I do teach that we do need to rebut every presumption, Beginning Absolutely. with the very first one, which is, here's mine. Uh, this is what I've come to. Please show me that the defendant exists in law, number one, which they can't do, because there must be some sort of an application made and there would be a record of it because everything in law exists on paper. The state itself exists on paper. Everything that the state does or any entity such as those requires some sort of record. And those records are subject to Congress, by the way, in case people don't know. Have you done oh. that in court? Have you used that? Do what? Have you used that? Have you implemented that, that notion in court? Uh, yeah, actually, I have. And we can get into the practicality and how powerful this really is. It's really actually quite amazing. Um, oh, Hello? Okay. okay. That's probably a mistake. So, uh, so my point is, is to go back to the foundation, the fundamental, and as Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Well, right. I ask the same question, except slightly differently. I don't say, who do you say that I am, because I know that I'm a who. You're trying to say that I'm a what. Well, we know right. that it can never be a what. Go to right. The, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, plural. Therefore, clearly telling you that people have persons. You can right. act as a person, but you can never be a person because you're always right. a man, which right. is one of the people. So therefore, you must first prove that the legal thing 
it exists in law, such as, well, who is the, uh, who is the uh, registered agent? And we stop the foreclosure by simply asking that one question. Who is the registered agent? Who, uh, where is the application form? Was it approved or not approved by the state? What is the DBA? What is the name that it is conducting its business under? Where is its corporate charter? And is it in good standing? And where is its evidence of its tax returns? So before they can even get to whether I'm an agent, officer, volunteer, whatever, uh, uh, and even the, the concept of surety, they have to first show that the entity exists. Now, this has been really powerful because they can't show that it exists. That's why I suggest, again, I go for practical stuff. I go for the throat. I suggest that people go to the Secretary of State's office and get what's called a letter of non-existence, and they'll give it to you. I think it's like a dollar or something like that. They never charge me. They said it's a dollar, but they've never charged me. And you walk down, and, and I've even gotten that um, apostille for this very purpose. And what it basically says is that there's nothing on the record of the Secretary of State's office of this particular uh, entity, all uppercase name, existing. So how can you have a defendant that doesn't exist? Kind of difficult. On top of that, um, as I mentioned before, when you sign the ticket, what you're actually doing when you're signing the ticket is two things. But the one that's important right now is you're actually signing as the bondsman. You are taking responsibility and stating that you will ensure that the body of the defendant, you will bring into court on that day. So that's the first thing that, that we fail to recognize, that we actually become the bondsman, the one who's obligated. We obligate ourselves by the signature on there, and unless, of course, you put non set to bring the body. So when you step into court, you're there. They assume that you are the body or the defendant, unless, again, now you must refute it or dispute the, uh, the presumption. But you can do that, and that's where affirmative defenses come in. And again, most states have a very clever way of doing this. They wait 30 days before they set the trial because in most state uh, codes, uh, operating codes, if you fail to assert your affirmative defenses within the first 30 days, you are considered to have waived them. So this is extremely important. Um, as to the part... Statutory limits. Huh? That goes to statutory limits. Right, but, you know, yeah, we're walking on both sides of the fence. But, I don't, you know, the thing is, you have to look at, you have to appreciate, first of all, that where, you know, how close can you get to this line without, without crossing it? How can you not fall off of it? I'll give you a, a quick example. I had a piece of property in Baltimore that I had just finished renovating. And some people broke in. And they brought in a chaise lounge, a chair, some plastic forks and knives, and a plate. And when I found out that they were living in my house, uh, and I didn't know who they were, I went to kick them out, but I went ahead and tried to do it lawfully. I called the police. And the police said I could not enter my own house. I could not kick them out because they were considered tenants. And I said, how could they be tenants when I don't know who they are and there's no contract? Well, through this back and forth, back and forth, and you can imagine how furious I was. I almost got arrested three times. Almost. I came that close, but I managed to back down and back off. And then I brought it to a fever pitch again, and then I backed down and backed off. This happened at least three or four times. The only reason I'm mentioning that is that you got to appreciate the 
parameters that they have created with their force, with their belief system, and with their guns. And we have to sometimes work within those parameters. You want to take away that power so that they no longer feel that they have that power. And that's why I do the 10 questions and other things which I've discussed. But so far as this particular subject right now, I want to bring uh, bring forth that I think that one of the most powerful things um, that is important is to recognize the need, which you said, is for them to identify who or what the defendant is, number one. Number two, they must identify what is the relationship that I, man, have with this alleged entity called the, named the defendant. I must be an officer, agent, and in fact, I must be the officer, agent, probably the fiduciary, if you're asking me or requiring me to settle this matter. Because most of the time, they just want a payment of a fee. Now, this worked in the case uh, in Pennsylvania where they were doing an um, occupation tax. And I had the guy ask the attorneys in the uh, uh, deposition phase, or actually it was a settlement phase, what do they call that thing, when you have a um, mediation, forced mediation. And I said, well, just ask the attorney if the firm that he works for pays occupation tax. And when he says yes, ask him, do you pay the occupation tax out of your pocket or out of the account of the, of the firm? And he's going to answer out of the firm. And that's when you're going to say, fantastic. Please provide me with a checking account of the taxpayer so that I may make payment. Oh, and please give me two checks because I have not yet been paid. Now, I did that in a case in California, um, and immediately it went from $540 down to 110 and I wrote him a letter back and said, thank you so very much for evidencing uh, extortion and mail fraud. So that's how I basically, in one short little letter, set them up for the second one, which is, you know, you just admitted you were trying to extort $440, because that was the difference between 110 and 540 uh, so it's uh, $430, yeah. So this is extremely powerful and extremely important, but it's also important because you need to get your head wrapped around it. Separate, 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 compartmentalize, compartmentalize, compartmentalize. You're a man first. You may be a person or you may be acting as a person. You can never be a person, but you can act as a person coming from the word persona. Sure. What is your relationship? What's your obligation? Where's the contract? Nobody can obligate you to something that you do not willingly obligate yourself because that's called what? Involuntary servitude. And I covered this once before. Nobody can volunteer me. I have to stand up, yell, scream, raise my hand, step forward. I have to take an action in order to volunteer to do something. And this, again, goes back to uh, the foreclosure stuff where I I insist that the note itself says the lender or anyone who takes this note by transfer clearly indicating that it cannot be assigned. They must take it, and they must take it by transfer and be entitled to payments under the note. So they have all of these provisions which are conditions proceed. They're conditions of the instrument before, before they can make any claim to it. So they have to show that they have some interest and they're entitled to it. So knowing this, the contract cannot be breached. The contract is as it's written. And what's happening here is I have to sign that contract. I have to agree to it knowingly and willingly. And it cannot 
be harmful, detrimental, disparage me. What is the uh, the uh, what is number uh, ten say? The enumeration of certain rights under the Constitution shall not be uh, misconstrued to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So once again, no contract. So that even if they want to make these claims, which is some of this history you've been talking about, where you've got this and you've got that, and you're subject to this and you're subject to that. Uh, if that was true, it would be void. In other words, the moment they make the claim, the claim itself would void the claim. Because the moment that they say that, oh, you're subject to this, I'm going to say, oh, really? How is it possible that I can be subject to something else? The only way I can do it is by contract, which is having full knowledge, and the contract cannot diminish or harm me. It must be mutually beneficial. Now, this is another thing. Beneficial does not mean that you lose benefits as a beneficiary. Now, this goes back to the foundation, which is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America in Congress assembled. Therefore, in, under that, it says, and whenever any form of government becomes destructive these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish, which means to get rid of it entirely. So how can the people, who are the only ones who have the power to alter abolish, every form of government that shall be established at any time from this point on, how is it that they can be subject to the very thing which they have created subject to protect them and make sure that they are not subjugated? So they would have a breach of contract right there, breach of the trust, breach of their fiduciary duty, and so on and so on and so forth. So in other words, the moment that they make uh, the claim that you have presented that they are appearing to maybe perhaps making or the assumption or presumption, they defeat themselves because it is evidence of the fraud, it's evidence of diminishment, it's evidence of, of conversion, which is where they're converting a right into a privilege and licensing it, so and so and so forth. Okay? So getting to the solution, the solution is how do we illuminate these specific things which are foundational, fundamental, which they can never get over. This is the beauty about it. And this is what I believe that those people who have been successful, when I look at what they were doing in quote-unquote common law stuff, what people call common law, um, Carl Lynch's uh, uh, activities, other people who have been successful, I've been following them over the years. And one thing all of a sudden, I think it was a month ago, I had the epiphany, I said, oh, What's going on is that these people are asserting their affirmative defenses and they're standing on them. Now, I just couldn't believe it the other day when I read in law, I'm going to see if I can find it for you, where it said that you must, if you want to stand on jurisdiction and challenge the jurisdiction of the court, you must not allow the court to continue in any activity whatsoever. By allowing the court to continue, you, you uh, grant jurisdiction. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what it says in their law, but it makes sense because that's exactly what these people are doing, for however they're doing it, whether they're noticing the court, whether they're saying, I'm a man, they're standing there, doesn't matter. They're not allowing the court to continue until it has been determined that the court has jurisdiction and the court cannot prove jurisdiction without proving that you're a subject or that you buy contract or some other office that you may hold. And that's why this becomes the linchpin to everything that they're doing, which you mentioned. That's why I'm highlighting that as a solution. Um, okay, so we covered that. Uh, let's do a quick question, see if anyone has any questions. I want to move on to the more particulars 
which I wanted to uh, discuss tonight and share with you guys some some particulars. Anyone have any other questions? Anyone have any comments that they want to bring? Uh, everyone's unmuted except for Roddy K and Aquila. Um, so we've only got Central New York. That's you. South Central Ontario and Eric seventy seven. So on those these particulars themselves, anybody want to make a comment or have a question? My only question is, can I get a copy of this afterward? And do you have any notes that you're, you may have been reading from? I'd like to see them. Uh, now, can I get Paul, an email? Most of this I've memorized, uh, but I can send <laughs> I can send it to yeah, like I know eighteen USC subset uh, eighteen USC two forty one. If two more persons conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any inhabitant in any state, territory, or commonwealth, or district in the free exercise or enjoyment, smile on your face, of any right or privilege secured to them by the Constitution laws of the United States, shall be fined or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. That's pretty damn clear. Now, I don't mind a statute that does it. Let me also share something else since you brought that up. As I stated, I do not give up anything, any of my rights, just because I have a contract, because I have an obligation, or because I choose to act in a certain manner or act in a persona. In other words, I can quit at any time. And that's another point. All these people in office have volunteered to be there. Now, this is if you want to get to really the root of the problem, um, the root of the problem is that all these people that are in offices right now are the wrong people to be in office. The people in office are supposed to be successful people that have succeeded in business, that are honorable men, that have proven themselves to be honorable in all of their business dealings, and are well looked up to, are successful on their own, and have really no need of pay. Therefore, they are not biased and cannot be bought and paid for. And they choose to volunteer to be governed by the law, statutes, codes, and so on, while they hold that office 24 hours, uh, 24-7, okay, and to uh, cause and ensure the security of the rights of the people and the powers that they have are delegated to ensure that the people are safe and happy. Now, that's their obligation. Uh, the fact that they're getting a paycheck tells you that they're employees and therefore they're not they can't they're not holding an office even though that's what it appears for. Let's look at judges for instance article 3 section 1 says the judges both of the supreme and the inferior courts shall hold their office during good behavior and shall be compensated for their uh oh gosh compensated for their service that's the word service Keyword service is not employment. They shall be compensated for their services from time to time. None of these judges are volunteers. None of these judges are providing a service and then getting compensated for the service. So you know that they're employees, and they're employees of a corporate entity. And that's kind of what's happened to all of these forms of, of, uh, of government is they've all turned into corporate entities, which is fine. It's one of the biggest misnomers, in my opinion, that all the patriots out there go, oh, it's a corporate this, a corporate that. Well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Let's go look at it again. A corporation is subject to the state. 
it's a creation of the state. It's called a creature of the state. Therefore, it's subject to the state. Guess what? When it violates its corporate charter or does something that harms any one of the people, you can bring in action to have its corporate charter pulled. So, if there is an entity under an all uppercase name and it's harming me, well, if it's harming me, then I have a right to bring an action to cause it to be dismantled, uh, dissipated, disappeared, or have its corporate charter pulled. And everyone's missing that. Now, I actually discovered that in the case in Oklahoma when I was looking up OS 1212, uh, as well as 10, 1066, I think it was, where it said that uh, it, was, it was 1212, and I believe it was 1212C, it said that no court can grant a, a suspended corporation uh, the right to bring or defend an action unless it is an action to dissolve the corporation. That's when I went, oh, bell went off, ding-a-ling-a-ling, light bulb, light bulb went off. So if we get our head wrapped around this and say, hey, this corporation is harming one of the people, that in and of itself and in violation of its corporate charter and in violation of the statutes, codes, rules, and regulations, and constitutions, which the state is subject to as well as it's subject to. And that's sufficient. That's it. So it seems to me that that would be one of the ways to go to shut these corporate courts and other entities down. The other way, and that's the proactive, the other way, if you just want to you know, get out of there, which is what most people want, then you simply say, okay, what entity, where is it in law, how does it exist? It's called an inseparable party. What they're doing is they're charging an entity that doesn't exist. Well, you go in there and say, well, where's an inse- where is the inseparable party? If they're a necessary party, you have to prove that that party, the defendant exists. Again, it goes to capacity. Remember the word capacity. You have to have the capacity to sue and be sued. That's number one. Look at any court case. Remember, I did that court case where somebody came in as a sovereign citizen, and the court said, no, we don't have jurisdiction. If you don't have capacity, the court doesn't have jurisdiction. That's why I go after capacity. Well, what is capacity? If they are suing an all-uppercase entity that doesn't exist in law, then that thing doesn't have the capacity to sue or be sued, does it? It's really that simple. So if it can't be sued, and it can't sue, because remember, in order to be sued, you must be able to sue, and I haven't seen any case where the all-uppercase name has taken an action to sue somebody. Because once again, the first thing that should be asked in the court is, well, what evidence is it that you exist in law? Where's your license? Where's your, uh, where's your uh, letter of good standing? See, these are the same requirements, like you were saying earlier. These are the requirements that we should be requiring them to fulfill. Who's the defendant? Where is the defendant? What is the defendant? What type of business are they engaged in? When were they granted their license? Where's their tax returns? Because they've got to be a taxpayer, because according to the definition of taxpayer, that's what they are. So what type of business are they entered into? Where's the corporate charter? Where was it granted? They can't provide any of that. So it's impossible for you to be surety of something that doesn't exist. It's impossible for you to be the fiduciary of something that exists. And it's impossible for you to be liable for something that doesn't exist. Kaboom. Now, let's flip on the other side. Any other comments before I move on? 
Oh, excellent. All right, let's get to some practical. That's the practical. I think that's, that's the fundamental. Get your head wrapped around it. You are not and can never be a person. Let me repeat that. You are not and can never be a person. You can only act as a person. As uh, idiot says, paper to paper, right. So you can only act as a person. You can never be a person. And you can have many persons, many personas. And you have the right to be secure in each and every one of those persons. That said, we need to go after them in such a way that causes the results that we're looking for. I believe from all of my studies and all of my workings in courts and all of my doings in court that defending yourself in any way or even making them go away, in my opinion, is not sufficient. Particularly since there's so few of us who are willing to do it and do do it and so few that know how. It's so minute that it's not even, it's not even barely on the accounting sheet because the only thing you're doing is preventing them from collecting on all the securities and all of the, the um, what do you call them, the, um, 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 what do they call them, the, the bonds, the securities, the, um, I just want the options, and the, ah, I forgot the other one. Um, it's another term they use on the stock market. It, they, the, the uh, I almost had it. Um, Anybody know it, what I'm looking for? Derivatives, derivatives. Um, and the derivatives market, which, by the way, has created a national, a quote-unquote debt that is larger than, the, than three times the entire alleged value of the earth itself, which is nuts. Oh, I will go backwards for one second uh, because I think you'll enjoy this. Um, are you still here? Yep, you're still here, okay. You I, might enjoy it. I appreciate it. I share this yeah. with you. This will blow your mind. Uh, a quick side note here, okay, before we move on to my 42 thing. Uh, at one point years ago, we were in the kind of the similar thing where you're at, and I was studying the library code because that's basically they're saying that we're under the library code right now, which is we've been occupied, blah, blah, blah. And we started off with 25 or 30 people before we even got halfway through this reading and studying the library code, we were down to one or two people, and then finally down to one other person who was not really there to study uh, in the first place. And guess what? Three-quarters of the way through the library code, I discovered the solution. If anyone, can anyone figure out what the solution was? So simple, it's not even funny. You can see why this is so important in a minute. It's called a treaty. <laughs> a treaty. That's the solution to get rid of the library code. Just create a treaty, and it's done. It's over with. No more occupation. And that kind of goes along to what you were talking about before. What was the three terms you used? Um, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, subtle. Knowingly, knowingly, willfully, intelligibly. What was the context of the so not that The other part about settling it um, or something to that effect. It wasn't settling it. What was it? Acknowledging uh, it. Something else. Oh, accept to accept, recognize, and acknowledge. Bingo. There you go. Okay. So to accept, acknowledge, and what was it? Rec realize? Rec accept, recognize, and acknowledge. Accept, recognize, and acknowledge. Okay. 
So uh, that's that's the first thing. <laughs> so you'll, you'll love this. I, I love to turn the tables. Now, allegedly, since you did a little history, let me do a little bit of history as well. By all means. If you remember, England was one of the most powerful and richest nations on earth until they made this huge mistake of turning over their monetary system to the Central Bank of England. And it was just a matter of three years before England became broke. And that was the reason why they financed, many of the investors didn't finance the settlements over here in this promised land, the land of gold and honey, which was supposed to, what they were literally looking for was to get free of the bankers, which are in, uh, what is it, not the town of London, what's it called, the crown, um, what's it called? Um, God, where is it? I can't even think of the name of it now. It's a section in England that's basically cordoned off for the banksters, and even the Queen the town has of that. London. It's the city huh? of London. It's the city of London. Okay. Um, so anyway, the point is that they that was the reason why they funded the settlements, and when the settlements didn't come back paying them a bunch of money so they could pay off all the debt and get rid of the banksters, they were in a pickle. And, of course, the banksters weren't about to let that happen. That's why when Jackson threw off the banksters, that's why that was such an important thing to do was to throw them off and to keep them out. Now, to me, here's another simple solution, just as simple as getting rid of the library code or the occupations by creating a treaty, uh, which, by the way, in case people don't know, I already did that, um, and it's in, the, it's in the Hague right now. So if you don't know that, they cannot use the library code anymore uh, since it's been almost five years now. A uh, little secret, which I haven't shared till now, actually. Um, so the other thing which makes the most amount of sense which if I had some other people willing to work on it I'd love to get together and do it it's called a uh, I guess you could call it a true bill or a tort suit or call uh, me afterward we will talk about this yes and it's a real simple thing England did in fact harm the people it did, in fact, wage war against an independent nation, which had already declared its independence, and it caused damages and so on. Now, to my knowledge, if you come and rip my house apart and tear it apart for whatever reason and try to invade it and I thwart you and fight you off, I'm the winner. And now I can sue you for all those damages. So to me, it's a very simple thing, this alleged debt that you're talking about, which is the reason that they created the Constitution, because they weren't able to pay the debt, the states weren't paying the debt, they were avoiding the alleged debt that was made, allegedly, blah, 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 blah. Well, what I'm saying is, okay, fine. Who has made suit against, the first of all, England for doing the attacks and causing the damage? That would consider, I believe, probably three to five times the amount of the alleged debt. And number two would be to go after the banksters who inst instigated all this to begin with. Now, here's a simple solution. Fraud eviscerates everything, including debt. So, have not the banksters instituted fraud, which means any alleged debt is now eviscerated, or always was, ab initio, void in the first place. Let's also talk about something else. The fiat money system, actually, in my opinion, is one of the greatest pluses, one of the greatest benefits, one of the greatest things that's ever been created. The problem is, is that it's been corrupted and made into the use of the banks just because the people don't 
know that they are the beneficiaries of the system. The system that we have basically is where you, and it and you practice it every day, and people don't know this, where you sign something, and that's it. They do not create money out of thin air, okay? We are the creditors. What they've done is trick us with all sorts of ways of doing things, whether it's a mortgage or loan or credit, and all of this stuff is a massive smokescreen only to deceive you into giving you your into giving them your signature on a piece of paper, which they then monetize. So that's the power. It's not coming out of thin air. That whole thin air thing, I never did like it, never did go after it. It wasn't until I had this opinion. I said, wait a minute. We have to be the creditors. All things were given to us by the creator. In fact, creator created all of it and gave it to us, endowed by the creator with certain unleadable rights. All things are creations of man are subject to man. It can only benefit man. It cannot harm another man including the maker. So even if we made a government or created something, a form of government, it cannot harm us. We cannot be held accountable to something that harms us or diminishes us. So that's fraud. Fraud viscerates everything. You see how, how simple this is. So this alleged national debt that people talk about, let's be clear, the United States, the United States, not the United States of America, not the 13 United States of America, but the uppercase United States is a corporate entity that was created to cause those elements that we desire to happen. It's no different than you hire Hewlett Packard to, to come up with designs uh, for a new, fighting, a new fighting airplane. They're under a government contract. They're required to perform certain things. The, the, Uni the United States is under contract, and it has a corporate charter. And it has, by the way, adopted... The Constitution, if subject to it, would be anyway. So the national, what they're calling the national debt is another slight hand trick. The national debt is actually the debt that the United States Corporation owes the people because that is the amount of credit of the people that they have been using. That's what's owed to us. Now what's happened, instead of giving you back that those funds, the big deal or the great deal was that no longer because the United States is going to use the full faith and credit of the people, okay, to stay in business so they continue functioning, the people are owed the national debt. It's the banks that owe, it's the, the United States that owes the people because it's using that credit. So if it, it's already been bankrupt, but if the foreclosure went on the United States, you know, the people would have to line up in order to get uh, paid out. But we're the number one creditors. We're the first, actually, pretty much the only creditors because it comes from us. Everything that it has, everything that it is, comes from us. So we have a claim. Now, let's go back to fraud. All of the, who is allegedly owed? Who does the United States owe? Well, when you go and look around the world, allegedly all of this debt that's worth three times the total uh, value of the earth itself is allegedly owed to banksters. Well, all we have to do is make a very simple uh, order, I guess you would call it, or claim, which they can't refute, uh, because nobody can come and testify to otherwise, and bring a claim against the banks that everything that they've done is fraud, and now, what is the first thing they do to drug dealers? First thing they do to drug dealers is what? Confiscate their house, confiscate their bank account, confiscate every single thing that they have before they go after the body. So what I'm saying is just assume that that's already been done. Because they've done it in fraud, which voids it, 
But on top of that, because of that, you can get trouble damages. So whatever the banksters are saying is owed is actually what's owed to us three times over. And therein lies the simple solution, ends it all. So we just leave the system the way it is, but we just let the people know that, hey, this is the amount that's owed to the people. I would not, go farther than that, and huh? before I forget, I, I said I would go farther than that, and before I forget, I'm just going to say this little tiny piece. It's not three times, it's two plus four. If you look up that phrase, two plus four, and in terms of injury and or compensation and or damages, you're going to find a lot of interesting stuff, and with that, I'll stop. Go ahead. All right, great. I just typed that in there, two plus four. All right. Um, okay, and, you know, correction there. So, so let's move forward. Let's, how are we going to get there? Well, the first thing, as I said before, is by, by hiding, running away, or using some simple little cross. Uh, you know, I'm going to call it a cross. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, how to, how to get rid of them, whether it's, whether it's working for you under common law, whatever label you want to put it at. It's basically like a cross. I won't call it a silver bullet because that kills. But the cross, as you know, supposedly, or, or daylight, you know, bright light, have to be sunlight probably, we'll, we'll keep the demons aware, keep the, the vampires away. I don't think that's enough. I think we need to uh, put the wooden stake in it, okay, shine the sunlight on them and make them completely viscerate, okay? That's what I believe we need to do. Now, how do we do that? The problem is, is that we have corruption in the offices of government that are being held because if each man or woman Man is non-gender, by the way. If each man in office was doing according to their sworn duty, what they have obligated themselves to do, none of this would be happening in the first place because everyone would be blowing the whistle and everybody would be uh, prosecuting and so on and so forth. So the problem is actually uh, actually comes down to the people in office, okay? The people acting as persons in office. That is the problem. So how do we communicate with them? Well, right now, because it's so corrupted that they have the guns, the weapons, the powers, and, 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 and the belief of the majority of idiots out there um, that they have the authority power and that they don't ever do anything wrong, which is a complete misnomer, this is what we're dealing with. So what do we have to do? That's where we come into the 42-1983. You could do a RICO and put a paint a target on your back, as you saw what happened to um, uh, Congressman Trafficant. Uh, they finally ended up killing him, but they put him in jail, and he kept bragging that he was one of the few people that ever brought a private RICO action and won against Congress or some other people, and uh, I believe that's why they took him out, and from my experience and other friends that I've lost, that's not exactly the most practical way to go, and it also is not going to put a dent on him, okay? Uh, what they do understand is the concept of money and profit. So thus, I have a little motto which goes like this. When, when corruption no longer is profitable, it will cease along with its influence. Now, the one that takes the most of money out of their pocket apparently seems to be the 42-1983 if you do it right. If you do a prima facie uh, case, you put everything and you put everything where it's supposed to be, uh, the way it's supposed to be, exactly the process, procedures, the elements, the affidavits, and, and so on and so forth, everything, Okay. When you do it properly, they will come to the table and they will pay millions of dollars to get a non-disclosure from you and to bury the case because they don't want to be exposed in the public. 
Now, at this point, there's only maybe five people nationwide that I know of. They might, let's say, that there's another 15. But there's only five people I know nationwide that do the 40, the, uh, 40 to 19 day three successfully and goes after them and costs them this amount of money. But suppose there were more people that were doing it and doing it right. Pretty soon, their profit margin would go down, 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 down. The more that their profit margin goes down, the more that the, the less money they have, the less funds they have to use for bribing as well or for leverage. So it only makes sense to do the 42-1983. First of all, it's going to put money in your pocket, which is always a good thing. Okay, whether it's fiat or otherwise, it doesn't matter. Remember that money, technically speaking, is only a representation of something. Is this now, call on? Is it on? Uh, what? Is it, hi. Is this call on? Yes, it is. Are you just joining us? Yes, sir. All right. What, what uh, are you guys talking about? Excuse me. Well, what do you? What do you? What, what is this call about? Well, just hang loose, brother, and you'll figure it out. You can always go back and listen to it. That's why it's recorded. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay? If you Thank have you. a question, if we get somewhere, you have a particular question to ask it when that time period comes. Okay, I have a question. Okay, can I finish first, please? Oh, yes, sir. Okay, you can put you can put it in the chat to remind yourself or put it on paper, and then, and then we can address it. So, because okay. most thank, of the time... Thank you when, so much. Thank, thank you. Okay, okay. So, are we done? Okay. Where was I? I just lost my thought. Ah, the 42-1983. So, once we get to that point where it's costing them, and, and, and also, by the way, let, let you know that invariably, if you follow the ones that were successful, um, in a 42-1983, you will see that there were ramifications, that what happened was the people that were acting as agents that caused the suit generally get fired. And part of the reason is because they're going to use the insurance policy to pay the millions of dollars to you along with everything else. These guys don't like losing money. Okay? What they don't like more is somebody going to jail and being convicted because that exposes them. That's a case law that somebody can rely on. So the best that we can hope for right now so that we don't make a target out of ourselves and end up being one of uh, Hillary's, you know, count hundreds of people that, that, that are taken out, what is better is they will give up the shekels. It's just shekels. They got all the money in the world in their, in their point of view. So you win a couple million dollars and it makes is, is there a way? Is there a way to put a question in, in the in this call? But is there a way I can uh, ask a question? Go ahead, ask the question, brother. Oh, uh, well, you what, you you're talking about uh, uh, the uh, the courts, right? Hello. Hello? Oh, well, I guess he got himself twisted up there. Um, okay, that so guy's going to try and waste your time, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. 
I guess it's a I yeah. guess spirit took care of them for me, huh? So yeah, uh, those so chills. Once, once, yeah, once we go, once we get to the point. So let me cover a few things. Let's let's get to the meat of what originally why I wanted to do this call. Um, on the 42 1983s, let's get the perspective, okay? Everybody got their, their hats on here. Um, the perspective, and the only reason I say this is because I've been Skyping with somebody who's been trying to do a 42 1983, and they run into a brick wall, and I wanted to address some of the common mistakes that people make. Um, let me see here. Um, the common mistake that people make is exactly what the judge said in this case. They re- she rejected it because she called it a shotgun presentation. What that means is you're taking a shotgun that has a lot of BBs in it. And what you're doing is you're just shooting a bunch of stuff and hoping something sticks, and that's not how you do it. First of all, 90% of the time people will quote law, statute, code, and so on, and pretend like that convicts somebody. Just because the law says you can't do something doesn't mean that you've just convicted somebody. Let's first of all look at this. Are you and any person not entitled to due process of law? Of course you are. So even though the law says that, hey, you can't do this, you can't harm another, that doesn't mean that that public servant is now proven guilty of a crime just because you put it in there. So if you don't have case law, which is the case where that particular person acting in that office has been convicted, duly convicted, of, of engaging in a crime, you bringing up a criminal charge, 18, uh, whatever it may be, does not mean that they're convicted of it. What it is is supporting evidence. It's supporting evidence. You have to prove the harm. And if you don't have any harm, you can't sue. All right? There must be a tort. There must be a harm. There must be an injury of some sort, whatever you want to call it. Okay? It must be there. It must have impacted your life in some way. That's what people have to prove. You have to, you have to exhibit that first, first by affidavit, then by other evidence. The part about what the, the action that they took being unlawful is supporting evidence that they knew or should have known that they're not allowed to take that activity. You see the difference? So this is extremely important. You, a second thing, you are not a judge. You are not a jury. So you cannot make a conclusion of law. And that's another thing that we, and I say we because I've done it, tend to do all too often. We make a conclusion of law. We tell the judge what they have to do. Our job is to present the evidence in such a way, as I said before, that it boxes them in and causes the court, that's why it's called the cause of action, causes the court or the judge to grant an order that causes an action to be taken, whether it's an injunction, payment, uh, penalties, and so on. Those are all actions that the court will take. And that's why you have to have a cause of action. So focus on the cause of action. Focus on the injury use the statutes and codes as evidence that, hey, there's a law that says they can't do it. But for me to sit there and say, hey, you can't spit on the sidewalk, okay, that's great. That's all I say. That's great. Okay, that's nice. 
You see, it's empty. First, I have to say, hey, here's videotape of you spitting on the sidewalk, and I saw you because I took the video. I saw you spit on the sidewalk. And here's some other evidence, and here's my affidavit. I have substantial evidence that you were, in fact, spitting on the sidewalk. And as a result, it caused this harm. My child slipped on it, fell on it, whatever it was. So you're directly responsible for the injuries that were caused to me or my family, my property, however you want to do it. And I have substantial evidence to show that you've done it. Now you can show, hey, and on top of this, it's unlawful, according to this, to all persons and entities, it's unlawful for them to spit on Hi, the Hi, Colin, how are you? Good, who's this? Oh, this is Mink. How are you doing? Just wanted to say hi. Hi, Aquila. Thank you for letting us know you're here. I'm letting you know. Oh. So, in order to in order to uh, make a claim, you have to have a claim. You can't sit there, even if you were correct that somebody broke the law, that they were doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, somebody who's in office. If they're doing something unlawful, you're not a prosecutor. If you want to prosecute, guess what? Send it to your, your AG, right? Your, um, 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 the, what is it called? The, um, uh, what is it called? What is it called? The, the attorney, the state's attorney's office, and then look up uh, under the statutes where it is, where, where it'll tell you that if they fail to prosecute within 90 days in most states, could be 120 days in others, if they fail to do it, then you may prosecute as a substitute for them, which is called a private attorney general usually. Now, you don't get paid, okay? You don't get damages because there was not, there's, it's just not a civil suit. You're actually acting as if you're a prosecutor. So don't get mixed up that there's a difference between criminal charges and civil charges. Very, very different. You can't bring criminal charges in a civil case. What you can do is say in your civil case that according to the law, it appears that they have engaged in unlawful or criminal acts. That is it. And you use that to support your assertions. You see the difference? And this is hugely important. Make no conclusions of law. Do not bring a criminal action. Bring your civil action, prove your claim, and use the other stuff as you would case law to support your assertion and to support the uh, ramifications or the amount. In other words, if you're doing penalty damages, and penalty damage is where it's really at as far as I'm concerned because a lot of times we're only harmed in, in a couple hundred thousand dollars worth and most people would settle for even $10,000 in most cases. The deprivation of a right, as I said, in my eyes, is a million dollars a day and that has been basically laid out in the Trazavant case where the man got paid close to $800 an hour. I mean, $800 a minute. And if you work out the number of minutes in a day, it's just about a million dollars a day. And that's me. But you probably, most people would be happy if they got ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Okay? And that's probably what is going to be your damages. All right? So you're going to get recompense for that. 
but I'm going after the, 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 the penalty damages. And the penalty, when you research penalty, it is designed to cause them to not, and anyone else, you might think about doing this activity, to not do it. So if they're making $5 billion a year on fraudulent taxes, do you really think that $100,000 is going to make a dent? That's not a, it's not even going to not even come close to discouraging them from engaging in unlawful taxing of private property, is it? That's what I'm getting. The more we perfect our ways, we can then get the penalty damages in such a way that it's so high. Now, most of the time you get this penalty damage, but obviously no jury and certainly no judge is going to sit there and give you $100 billion, even though it might make sense. And that's why I'm working on and I'm looking for people who want to work on this, and somebody might know more about this, but I believe that I can, as part of my settlement, if you want to call it, because that's where I'm taking them to the settlement table, I can ask for almost anything. So I could ask for $100 billion. I said, I tell you what, I trade in $90 billion for this and this and this and this to occur, to establish this, 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 and this, for you to establish a, a, a free, you know, no-charge um, uh, law assistance in, in the libraries. So that instead of the attorneys having everything, you've got people who can get assistance all the time to, to provide this, to provide that, to provide uh, um, uh, securities, and so on and so forth and put the bonds up. So I believe, in fact, if you go to the federal rules, Rule 11, I believe, it actually says that you can make a non-frivolous suit to change, alter, or institute new law. What? Yep. Right remind there. Me, you mentioned that. Remind me to cover with you, and this is probably better suited offline. Remind mm-hmm. me to cover with you how to do precisely that with the private national's wish involving their trust and involving the bill and equity that you referenced earlier. And and also you can uh, contact uh, all the folks here listening because, Colin, you asked the gentleman that was speaking Irish to provide solutions. Remember, you wanted to cut them off and said we were getting to the solutions. Not sure you, Colin, have offered many solutions. I wonder who that is. I keep getting cut off. I wonder what's going on. Sounded like he had something really interesting to say. Hmm. Oh, well, I guess not. Okay, so um, I think I pretty much covered the important uh, important things. And they may not seem like much, but they're absolutely huge to get your head screwed on right, that you're not bringing criminal charges, you're not a prosecutor, and just mentioning a law does not make somebody guilty of it. And that's pretty much it. And then when you do the 42-1983, make sure you lay it out. Oh, I know the other thing I want to mention. Jurisdiction, 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 jurisdiction. The first thing in a 42 or any federal action, you must prove jurisdiction. Both in-personam and subject matter. Say again? Both in-personam jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction. That's correct. Absolutely. So you need to show this at the very, very head because if you don't do that, you'll get knocked out. That's the first thing that the other side will do 
is they will challenge jurisdiction and they'll just throw up anything. They go blah, blah, blah. They'll just throw up stupid stuff. But because they're an attorney and you're not, the court always goes in their favor and says, yep, now you've got to prove jurisdiction because it's been challenged. So if you address it at the very, very beginning, when you look at these successful cases, by the way, for those of you who are interested and are studying and do want to do 42-1983s, you by all means contact me. I have a, a, a disc which cost me $200, but it has probably 50 or more cases of the actual filings, what was written of winning cases. There's even one RICO in there. There's some other stuff in there. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, this is a good way to go. Well, how did other people do it? And every single time, even in, in the uh, Trazavant case, which I think was pretty weak, but they did it, they address um, jurisdiction right off the bat. So that's that's number one hit. And, of course, uh, making sure that uh, you go after the principal and not the agent. Oh, that was the other huge thing. Why? Look, when you're at McDonald's, when you're at McDonald's and you have a problem with one of the cashiers, you don't keep arguing with the cashier. The first thing he goes, I want to speak to the manager. This is kind of what, it, in my opinion, this is what it means to act as a man or sovereign or whoever, whatever you want to be, having that position. As long as you keep arguing with the idiots, you know, it kind of makes you an idiot. If you keep arguing with the guy at the counter, that then you're keeping at that level. So you go to the manager. If the manager can't help you, what do you do? You write a letter to uh, corporate. It's exactly what you do. And you get like I got, which was coupons for 300 hamburgers. <laughs> Not what I wanted. But uh, I still got some action. And, of course, that cashier was no longer working there. So uh, the point is you are acting as a lawyer. And, the, and I'm going to phrase it the way I phrased it to somebody today, you know, all out of kindness, okay? This is not meant to be uh, mean, nasty, or smart-ass. It's just the only way that I can think to present it. The first thing that you need to do, you have a client. You are acting as a lawyer. You're, you're prescribing law. You're administering law from whatever perspective you're doing it in, whether as a person, uh, as a sovereign, as one of the people, uh, as a citizen, however you want to do it. And, and uh, make no mistake that just because you come in as a citizen does not mean that you let go of or renege or uh, waive anything else. It's just that you're choosing to use those. Now, surely if people have persons and uh, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, surely you are inherently entitled to all those rights, powers, privileges, and immunities that your creation is entitled to. Because the people grant the power, limited power, the people grant the, the, uh, the uh, extra additional rights and the protections. So therefore, the people must have them first. And just because you grant a portion does not mean that you let go of it so that you no longer have it. So uh, that's another misnomer. Just because I come in, in fact, if you go to Hale versus Single, the last half of it with a dissenting opinion, you'll see that, the, that those judges say that even corporations have the right to immunity of, um, uh, of the uh, looking into the books, papers, and so on if they're acting as an agent of a corporation. So he's saying that because it's a person, 
that a corporation is considered to be a person, he's still entitled to those rights. Well, the beauty about that is he's arguing that even the persons have rights, okay? Well, that works for me because if you think I'm a person or I'm acting as a person, I still have those rights and you're still obligated to perform. It doesn't negate your obligation, not your, but their obligation to perform. You see, so I never let anything go. I don't say I'm ever subject to anything. No, just because I, 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 I'm on a team or just because I'm an employee, I can quit anytime I want if I don't like what they're doing. And this is something that people don't recognize. Just because I come in, uh, you know, as a citizen, for instance, a citizen of what? Nobody's even defined it. Uh, it's not even fully defined. You have to get them to define, well, what is a citizen? Of course, they never go after the citizen. They always go after an all uppercase name. Again, identify it. So to me, this is, you know, really, really crucial that uh, that we understand um, to stand under, uh, you know, that's what they're using, to comprehend the perspective that you have to have when you're going into this. And that is that you are acting as a lawyer, one educated in law, you're administering law, and you have a client. And the first thing you need to do, unfortunately, your client is you. Unfortunately, the first thing you need to do, and there's no nice way to say this, is to get your head in the game and out of your client's ass. You know, we always hear, well, get your head out of your ass. Well, I'm trying to get you to separate you, the, uh, the lawyer, versus you, the man who is angry, upset, and want to go beat the crap out of that asshole agent who has screwed you over, whether it's a judge or some other officer. And what you want to do as, your, as a lawyer who has a client is get your lawyer head out of the client's ass, which is emotional, once a quick tweet resolution, get me out of here, da-da-da-da-da. Because what I have experienced is that when you're prepared for the long game, when you're prepared for 15 rounds, generally speaking, you're so well uh, in shape that you end up knocking them out within the first or second round. But if you think, I'm going to knock them out in the first round, you know what? It ends, if you're lucky, you get to stay in the fight for 15 rounds. And most people don't even last 15 rounds. So in other words, that's another suggestion. Be prepared for the 15 rounds. Be prepared. Everything you do should be for appeal, making your record, making your objections, following up with the law, correcting them, calling them out. Over and over and over again, you get and continue going and going and going and going. So, what else? I think it was one other thing that was the most important thing is to put on the hat of the lawyer, and the lawyer knows that you don't go after the agent. The agent doesn't have anything in their pockets anyway. You go after the principal who is required and obligated and duty-bound to manage their own agents that act on their behalf. Remember that a principal is assumed to know, presumed to know what their agents are doing. And in fact, an agent acts on behalf of the principal as if they were the principal. So the principal is liable. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go after them individually in their private capacity and say, hey, uh, you should have known that this was against the law, you know, and you use the office, whatever, however you do that privately. 
but I, I doubt very much that you're going to get very much from them. Okay, and again, if you want to if you want to prosecute them criminally, you you see how to do it. You have to file it, and then when they fail to do their job, then you can you can come in as as a private, um, and basically a private. But you'll be held to the same standard. You thought it was hard before as a prosecutor. You can be held to a very high standard there. So uh, I think that that is sufficient. I see face one stuck back on here again. Uh, Quilla snuck back on here again. Who else? Jeffrey's on here. He snuck back on here again. And Quilla. I'm just taking care of the administrative stuff here of muting people out who are known disruptors. And guest 16. Oh, came and went. Yeah. This is why I may have to actually uh, mute the whole board. Okay, so, um, Iris, you got any co- quick comments you want to talk in private? Because I'm going to, this is through, uh, 939, covered the issues that I wanted to cover, and then some. And uh, I think that's about it, unless we have something else, some particular questions that people want to ask. If you don't have, I'll mention again, if you don't have an affidavit supporting your claim, Remember, as a lawyer, the first thing you would do is tell your client, make an affidavit. Now, let me share with you some practical stuff. The easiest way to make an affidavit is to have a friend and a recorder. Tell your friend your story. Record it. Then sit down and act like a secretary. You're going to wear many hats. You're going to be an investigator, attorney. You're going to be a secretary. You're going to be a recorder. You're going to be a... All these things. These are all. The everyone go. Everyone. Everyone go to Aquila's call. One four zero. And um, so, what you want to do when you wear these many hats is you want to then, uh, what's it called, transcribe the recording of telling the story, and that transcription then you want to then put it into the format of an affidavit and pull out the facts from the story, and then list them out. That's the easiest way I know to do an affidavit, because to sit down and try to write one is like pulling teeth. It's like nobody does it. I don't know, you know, it just seems to be an impossible thing for people to do. So that's my suggestion of a practical way of doing it. If I I may, there's a, a few things I wanted to briefly touch on. Um, and you may have this in that, that uh, series you were mentioning that you, you paid for, <coughs> but if you have not, um, beyond simple step-by-step and procedures, um, I would simply, if you're going to go the statutory route, which I don't recommend. Um, Do what? Again, I, I said if you're going to go the statutory route, which I, I don't recommend, I, I, would, I would caution to use Rule 4 of civil procedure Look up the federal standards for those prisons and jails. Use the federal form for the habeas corpus. Uh, look up the memorandum 12B, Rule 12B. Look up Owen v. City of Independence, Davis v. Mississippi. Uh, look up, just Google Idaho fingerprints and, and see how that relates. Um, where the You're state is board, acting as a traitor. Pardon me, go ahead. You're not on the board, are you? I don't know. Am I? 
Uh, did you go to the Internet and click on, and you're somewhere to be found on the board? I don't see you on the board anywhere here. The reason I'm, calling, is you, I'm calling from the phone. Okay, all right. That is, yeah, the reason is because you're talking really fast, and, and we need somebody to type in the case and everything that you just said. Oh, sure. I'd be happy. I, I thought you wanted me to, to go faster. I'll go slower. I'd be delighted to. Uh, yeah, no, what I was saying, the case law or anything like that, you got it real slow. Okay, so uh, we briefly touched upon Hale v. Henkel earlier. Um, that's worth revisiting. Rule 4 of civil procedure is worth revisiting. Look up the Burnett, the U-R-N-E-T-T complaint. Look up the federal standards for prisons and jails because very probably yours, if, if you're looking at this call, you're, you were probably visiting one of them, and I guarantee you, damn near every one of them is fault in someone. Um, the one that I visited personally had no less than 17 faults where they, they failed to meet that federal standard. And they're, they're, uh, the next thing I mentioned was a memorandum of Rule 12B, or maybe not the next thing, but one of the things I mentioned. So memorandum of Rule 12B, Owen, O-W-E-N, the, the City of Independence is the next citation I wanted to have people look up. Davis v. Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-T-P-I, as we were taught in school. Right, right. So Davis v. Mississippi, the case of Idaho, the fingerprints case, um, the state acting as a trader with a D, not an A-I-T, so T-R-A-D-E-R, um, Knowing how to order your motion, it's not even a motion, it should be a writ or basically to compel um, is key. Looking in the support, which in, was either 1998 or 2008, something in the day, but my, my mind is not, like I said, like before my TBI, my memory is great, but after that, I don't know. But, so the, what I'm getting at is the brief of the support of the motion to dismiss, if you're going to use a motion, it, be prepared to have them shoot that down. Uh, don't use motion. Uh, look up the recent case that caused the, quote, unconstitutionality of the motion to dismiss and meet their requirements for why they say it's allegedly unconstitutional and, and use that to get around what they're saying is unconstitutional. Um, look instead to Rule 56, uh, require summary judgment. You can do that in addition with a, a brief that's in support of 6-610, for dismissal, uh, you may need uh, to have a notice and claim for, for more time. Uh, but making sure you have, like you were saying before, you know, you're going to play many hats, making sure your admissions and interrogatories is done before you even begin is going to help you with getting you know, around the time things that you're going to ask for. Look up notice of taking deposition, says TECUM, D-C-E-S, Tecum, Look up your answer to amend the notice of taking deposition, and then, of course, your order. Look up Faison, F-A-I-S-O-N, Faison, V, the city of Longview. And like you said, you know, this is all building up for your appeal, so make sure you've got your notice of appeal done, your docket sheet, your appellate court docket number, your appeal designation on the clerk's record, the appellate brief, the oath issue, the appellate court opinion, how to get around, uh, you know, make sure you address how other people have said a claim is frivolous so that you know what their usual tactic is in your area of the woods 
and, and build around why it's not frivolous. So make specific mention, as they say in court, with specificity that it is explicitly not frivolous. And then look into the Bob Schaefer letter or the John Hoyt case. The Bob Schaefer is S-H-A-E-F-E-R, and John Hoyt is H-O-Y-T. Uh, that will help to see how this all fits together and uh, make sure that, that the requirement, whether you call it notice of claim, prayer be writ, whatever, for voluntary dismissal is, is part of when you make sure uh, the notice in, uh, in particular, the, mo the motion to dismiss I mentioned earlier, having gone over the payoff and the motion for the voluntary dismissal are two separate issues. Um, that's the only thing I'd add to it uh, in being very brief. Uh, and yeah, that sounds, well, I appreciate that's very helpful. And let me also share something I found very, uh, very, very helpful. And like I say, it's normally about $125, but if you look around, particularly on Craigslist and other places in your area, uh, you, or even go to older firms, or any firm for that matter, and you'll find out that they invariably have books that they're getting rid of. And my friend, actually, who I've been helping, um, uh, he found... Uh, a whole library because one of the um, one of the attorneys had died, and he had you know all the books and everything. In fact, uh, apparently he negotiated to get the bookshelves, which are actually about three thousand dollars too. But he gave me this book, and this is one my mentor has been telling me to get for about three years. It's called the Trial Handbook for, in this case, Maryland lawyers. So it would be whatever state you have the Trial Handbook for whatever uh, state you're in, lawyers. That's number one. And that, uh, I find, is big print, easy to understand, very abbreviated, but it gives you case law, very, very powerful tool. The other one, which I, as I've mentioned before, but I'm going to mention again because it's, um, it has a way of getting you to understand. Now, this is a little bit longer. It's a much smaller print, but it's still easy reading. And it's called Federal Jurisdiction by Irwin, E-R-W-I-N, Chemerinsky, C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y. And he goes over uh, a tremendous amount of things for the first, which is just, it just gives you an understanding. And then in chapter, uh, where are we? About page, what is this? I'm on page, well, I'm past it, but it begins right around 400, page 450. And he starts getting into the uh, 1983. Um, and there's a lot of stuff we don't know about, you never hear about, like, for instance, is a case right? Now, who would have ever thought of a term called where a case must be right in order for... Oh, sorry, honey. Uh, my books are making a mess. Um, right for... for, um, for um, I'm not quite the word I'm looking for. Um, adjudication that if it's not right, that they might reject it. So it gives you all of the, the warnings as to why they would reject something and how to look at it so that you won't even, uh, you won't think about it. You don't have to memorize. That's what I love about it. You don't have to memorize much because you get an understanding, a comprehension of how the courts look at it, what they're looking for. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I need to put this uh, back in another one too. I forgot. I think I said it. Yeah. 
in form of papyrus. I know some people say, oh, when you do that, you give jurisdiction. Well, you know, once again, I'm going to give myself all the tools available to me. If you do in form of papyrus, when you're doing a 42-1983 or any other federal case, here's a beautiful caveat. What happens is that they will not allow your case to get to the court until they have reviewed it, and they'll kick it back to you and tell you how to correct it. It was right after someone told me about this that I discovered a case where the court right off the bat said, you paid for it, therefore it is considered that you had the money to hire an attorney, and therefore it's required that you would know that you're supposed to do A, B, C, and D, which you did not do, and therefore the case is dismissed. Of course, it was dismissed without prejudice, but it meant that they had to come back, refile, and pay the fee, and so on and so forth. And, of course, the other side is going to say, oh, res judicata, which, of course, you have to say, well, the elements, none of the issues were ever there, so the issues were not tried or made in adjudication, um, which is, you know, it's more nonsense that they do. So it's a real advantage in my book, uh, particularly your first time through, not to make the payment, to do the inform of to cause the experts in the, uh, at the courthouse to take a look and what you have, and then point out what's not right, what's missing, what you need to do, and save yourself a big headache. So this is huge, um, in my opinion, that that's a, a tool that's very useful. Now, remember, a lot of the information I'm giving you, not a lot, a lot, but a good portion of it, is secondhand. It's coming from my mentor, who has done 42 1983s, and he's succeeded in every single one that he's done and uh, got them to come to the settlement table without our having to go to trial. And I've mentioned this several times before, you know, that when the state is paying millions of dollars for, uh, in the last case I believe was right around $36 million for, and it was for taking somebody's property on an alleged tax sale, uh, when he laid it out perfectly and, you know, what, what it means went back to the foundation, what ownership of land is, that it's a loyal and, in nature and, and going back to the founding uh, documents and so on uh, and case law and blah, 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 and showing that even if you were a taxpayer that they would still have to show where the citizen is, in other words, what portion of the property is being used in that particular taxable activity, on and on and on and on, all the details, all the stuff, and so on and so forth. Uh, and they paid $36 million because they didn't want it to go to court because they knew, and he has the experience of the people that he's helped out, that the people screwed it up. And he was just like, okay, that proves to you that I can write the documents and it'll get you where you want to be, but if you can't present it in court because you don't understand it, you haven't done your homework, uh, you're going to fail. So uh, there's two sides to this. You have to know it, eat it, drink it, breathe it, and grok it. And then you have to be able to present it, as he calls it, to any idiot who lives under the bridge so they can go, huh, that does make sense. Why would you, here's a good example, why would you throw off a king or queen who has been oh, taking your property, housing soldiers and so on and so forth, taxing you and et cetera, making it so that your property is not your own, why would you throw that off and then turn around and institute a government that does the same damn thing? doesn't make common sense. And uh, the way he lays it out is obviously, you know, really good and, 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 and so on. So it can be done. It is done. There are people that are good at it, and I'm learning from him. Uh, but I, of course, have my own twists and my own ways of doing things. 
and you can succeed, and it does make a difference. So I'd like to I'd like to send out that encouragement to people who wish to do it this way. Uh, again, I don't have a problem using statutes, codes. I don't have a problem using constitutions. I don't have a problem using anything if it benefits me, if it helps me, if it strengthens my position. Anything. I don't mean to imply that it, I don't mean to imply that you can't learn from it. Okay. In fact, I would even go farther because we've we've seemed to have primarily focused tonight on '83. I would go farther and say, look up 1984, look up 1985, look up 1986 and 1988, and see why so many 42 actions that are filed have so many things to do with those other subsections, because you may very well be able to use those. Now, just Absolutely. because you use the spirit, intent, and the nature or purpose of an act doesn't mean you cite the act necessarily. You can still have all of those things that you're learning with a class like this one that, that uh, Colin is referencing, you can still learn all of those things and use all of those things in your cause and and not necessarily even mention it by number. Having said, I, I know of a man named Trezvon. That doesn't mean, especially when you call him a man and not a person, that doesn't mean that you've cited the case, right? If you say, hey, look, I know about this man named Trezvon that was also injured, right? That's not the same thing as saying, Miami v. Trezvon, right? So you can still, there are ways to work around it without technically citing it as your authority. That's all I've Very well said. And I, I would also add to that, uh, which I've mentioned many times, is that in particularly that I learned this in my Oklahoma case, um, I never used the word fraud. I never used the word, uh, the other terms that are used in law. What I did do, though, was I sufficiently showed the elements of those particular things. Like, for instance, kidnapping. I never once said to the cop or had the, the, the woman who was doing the case, I never had her once ask the cop, well, didn't you kidnap me? No, what I did have her was ask the follow-up questions. Is it true that you released me upon receiving my signature on this instrument? And he said, yes. We're... Isn't it true that had I not given you the signature on that instrument, that I would not have been released? Is that correct? Yes. What did I just give? He just testified to kidnapping. That's the elements of kidnapping. See, I never use the word kidnapping. But in my notes, my end notes, guess what I did? I put the definition of kidnapping in my end notes. And that's why they're stuck on it right now, because I have them admitting to kidnapping. There's nowhere for them to go. I also have them on counterfeiting and uttering and passing counterfeit instruments, and I also have them on where the court is acting as a collector when the court is not licensed as a collection agency. What? The court is acting as a collector of a debt, aren't they? They're acting as a debt collector. They're taking that instrument without it being proven, and they're collecting on it. That's what they're trying to do through color of law activity. So what we have is counterfeiting here, uttering and passing of counterfeit instruments. We have kidnapping and a form of extortion. And then, a, and then a court, an alleged court rather, corporate entity acting as a court, acting as a debt collector, which it's not authorized to do. But I never once used those terms. So yeah, that's a very, very good point that you need to know the elements without ever actually using it. However, there's a way around that as well. 
I use the term appears. It appears that they're in violation of 18 U.S.C. 241, which states in pertinent part, blah, 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 blah. And then I will get a copy, a certified copy, something else I learned, by the way, in evidence. Rules of evidence, by the way, are extremely important. I also found the Maryland Rules of Evidence and the Federal Rules of Evidence and, re- and also look up um, best evidence rule. This goes directly to the foreclosures. The best evidence rule, and I mentioned this last show, that I figured out, wait a minute, if they're not bringing the original in, which is under the best evidence rule, then that means a copy of a copy is considered to be secondary evidence, which now puts them under the burden of proving their secondary evidence. And then I listed to you last time, I'm not going to repeat them all this time, listen to last week's show, it was pretty good, where what are the elements that they have to do in order to allow that secondary evidence to be admitted? But once again, if you, in this particular, in these cases, when you're in court, it's not like here in in life where I don't have to raise an issue, I don't have to object. Um, You know, here you have to. You must object to everything, every assertion that they make. You have to object to it and and show otherwise. So if they can't show uh, the elements that are necessary and you challenge it properly, and say, hey, wait a minute, this falls under the best, the second, the second evidence rule, secondary evidence rule, which requires them to not only testify as to the authenticity of it, but they must also now, under the second, secondary evidence rule, they must testify as to the contents of the writing. So that gives you an opening. You put them on the stand, or you do a deposition. You say, okay, fine. Is this the instrument that you're claiming that is a copy of it? Yes, great. Could you please tell me what line 45 says or, or fairly close? Uh, 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 I don't know. Well, how about 36? I don't know. How about 24? I don't know. How about 16? I don't know. How about line 1? Uh, I don't know. But you usually can't testify to the contents of this writing, can you? No. So you can't authenticate anything, including the contents here, and can you? No. End of story. It's gone. Now move to strike. It's done. So anyway, these are fun strategies to play with. Like I said, I haven't done the one which I want to do on the license thing, that if they fail to Mirandaize you before asking you, which is called interrogation, they're asking you to say something, they're asking you a question, they're asking you to provide them with a license or uh, registration, whatever the hell it is. All of that is evidence that they intend to use against you in the court of law in a criminal case. You have been arrested because your freedom of movement has been substantially impaired Right or your right to stay where you are in lawful in your lawful choice of where you are right has been uh, 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 substantially impaired and as such therefore you have been arrested and as I've read before that when you have been arrested and they ask you any question which is called now an interrogation because you are under their rule right under their authority that they must Mirandize you, and anything that, that they receive that has not been Mirandized first is inadmissible in court, which means that every piece of information they got off of that driver's license, the registration, and everything else is what? Moved to strike. Now they got nothing. Ain't got a name. Ain't got a driver's license number. Ain't got nothing. They got no registration. They got nothing. So they got nothing to put on that piece of paper, do they? Oops. Kind of the same thing with the note and the deed of trust. That's what TILA does, if you think about what TILA does. When you rescind the note and the deed of trust, the moment that you send the notice, let's be clear, 
The moment you said that's what the uh, Janowski case was about, the Supreme Court clearly stated that once you mail it, it, the note and the deed of trust are void. Period. It is void. They have 20 days in which to bring an action to basically say, oh, you can't do rescission. But in that same 20 days, if they fail to bring an action, guess what? They're required to return everything to you. Everything. All the deposits, all the money given, and they're supposed to do whatever's necessary to make sure that that property is put back in your name again. So that's their requirements under TILA. Okay? TILA's not under common law. It's an extension of the common law. It says it clearly in the, in the, in the case. If you go look it up. They said that we're not talking about the common law right here. We're talking about another right that was granted by Congress. Additionally, on top of, just like in common law, you may have certain rights, but that doesn't mean you have certain immunities. doesn't mean that you have certain privileges. You see where I'm going with this? Why would I want to deprive myself of rights, privileges, and immunities when they're right there for me? I would, I would say to that the answer is, Instead of limiting it to TILA, I would say it in the form of a show cause. For example, uh, <clears throat> I've never seen any man show cause why I don't have the right to X, Y, Z. And that way you're not citing TILA, but you are indirectly saying, by the way, I happen to have this right because I said so. See Amendments 9 and 10 if you think anything otherwise. And uh, because I have that right and because they trespassed upon my right, I've been injured. And I've never seen any man show me why I should sustain such an injury without any kind of compensation or without having remedy offered to me. And because I brought, you know, you don't have to say because. Just say I've never seen any man show cause that I should forsake either the rights or the remedy available to me. That's just I don't disagree. Well said. Uh, I I know I may do that, and from time to time may do a show cause order because that's kind of fun to do to watch them squirm. Um, but I I don't even need to. I just basically do what I call a negative averment. Or when I what I do is I do it my um, my interrogatories or my admissions, and at the bottom of them I say your failure to provide. The documents required constitute your admission that they do not exist. And I added to that today, what was it? Do not exist. Oh, do not exist. Do not lawfully exist. There we go. That's what I added to it. Now, I just added something to it today. So those people have been paying attention to that. May I suggest that you use that, my new term, which is lawfully exist. Because that's huge. That covers a tremendous amount. In other words... The assessment on your property, well, the assessment exists, but does it lawfully exist? So that's why I've changed that, because it really puts them in a box now. So with that, they can't show that it, does, that it, doesn't, that it does exist or it doesn't exist, whichever side you're on. Um, substantial, you know, they'd have to show some kind of substantial real evidence that this right does not exist, or that I'm not entitled to the equal protections of the law whether I'm a man, whether I'm a citizen, whether I'm a person. According to the Constitution, a person, with a person is the lowest. So if I'm a man, or I'm a citizen, or I'm a surly, I'm entitled to the same things as a person is. Because the person got its powers or its, its rights from the government 
which the government got its rights and powers to grant such rights from the people. So surely I must have any rights that any citizen have. I must have any rights, powers, privileges, and immunities that any person has as well. You see, that's how I look at it, and that's how I kind of phrase my stuff. When I when I say that, um, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Colin, you know, man, Colin, given the name Colin Derrick and the family of Mark Yates, uh, uh, as one of the sovereign people, uh, I'm saying I'm as, I'm coming in as, okay, and entitled to all rights, liberties, protections, I forget how I did, da 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 da, and requiring this court to provide such in accordance with the laws. That I, I have a whole little ditty I do. And I also want to mention that because we're dealing with corporate entities, it is my belief somebody's making a lot of noise. Can you chill out or mute out? Is that you? All right. I was um, muted. Thank you. So, in my opinion, part and I mentioned this years a couple years ago, and I've been really pushing it. It really seems to make a difference. Is you want to make contract? In fact, I'm beginning to believe that the process that we're going under. Here, I'm going to see if I can find out who that is. I got it. it was South Pennsylvania, Southwest Pennsylvania. Um. That is my belief that this whole thing is hammering out a contract. Think about it. You make they make an offer. You say uh 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 uh. You make a counter offer. They go uh 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 uh. And you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until finally somebody accepts. And that's why somebody said that you can always find remedy in court. In other words, even if you've lost and lost and lost and lost and lost or you did not get the contract you wanted, that you continue to object because you have a right not to enter any, into any contract that you don't agree with. And that's why people, quote-unquote, lose the cases because they give up. Don't give up. Continue to make your objections. Don't consent. Does that make sense? Absolutely. They will assume, presume, or otherwise take silent judicial notice that you have if you do give up. That's it. Once it begins, you have to refute, rebut, and most of all, object, 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 object. Objection just means, nah, no thank you. Appreciate your offer, but nah, I don't accept it. Nah, I don't like that. That's I'll go not farther. Work for me. I'll go farther. If you're going to use the term object, take make sure that you say you object and take exception to the same. Because a mere objection on its, hand, on its own might be because, um, you know, the, the wind blew that way that day. But if you object because you take exception, you're not even under, you have not consented or given assent to be under the assumption or presumption that you're objecting to. So I like to take exception, like it's, a, it's a much stronger way to object. I like that. Thank you. That's wonderful. So that's another nice, nice little tidbit. There's all these wonderful tidbits that people come up with because we've had experience and we play with things, we test things, we try things out, we see what works and what doesn't work. And that's all we're here. That's all I'm here trying to do is share with people uh, my personal experiences and also the experiences of many other people I've been helping and I'm close to on these cases as we go along. And these are different, and many of them are in different states. I think I've got cases right now, 
two or three in Pennsylvania, even though I don't have any property there, uh, New Jersey, New York, California, uh, two or three cases, California, Dakota, believe it or not, um, already did New Jersey, Florida, uh, Oklahoma, obviously, uh, Maryland, Virginia, two in Virginia, three in Virginia, um, trying to think of where else, oh, one in uh, Louisiana, Indiana, um, trying to think of where else, but basically, you see, I, I even had uh, one gentleman, actually was a case here, but he was living in New Zealand, uh, and now in Australia, but I picked up somebody from New Zealand, and of course, we have some friends in Canada, I don't have any ongoing cases in Canada. Well, yeah, technically I do. And, of course, Sonia. Sonia wants to uh, to do something. Uh, so, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're constantly every day talking to people, communicating with people, reading their writing, reading the orders of the court, on and on and on, you begin to see patterns. And that's really all I'm trying to share with you is patterns that I notice. Uh, like each state is different. I notice each state has their own way of doing it, but... I still see similar outcomes for similar reasons in every state. I see patterns. And ironically enough, that's exactly what you need to show in a RICO action. There's a pattern of activity of over a year, a repetition of the same pattern over a year. Whereas the 42, 1983, as you said, I haven't read all the other ones, the ones you mentioned, 1983, 1984. Those are all available. I mentioned, for people who don't understand, when I mentioned... 1983, I'm talking about that whole genre, that whole, whether it's 1983, 1984, whatever it is that you're using, it's that genre of bringing in action under deprivation of rights or some other action under the federal uh, code or constitution, something that's cognizable of a court of the United States. It's kind of what I mean to say when I use the 42, 1983. Um, so you'll see these patterns, and when you get these patterns, you say, aha, that's what their trick is. Like I said, I know for a fact from experience of other people that the first thing they attack, and guess what? It's in the book. It's right here in the book. It tells you right off the bat um, um, that the first thing they attack is going to be jurisdiction and that they're going to use all sorts of t- tricks. Yeah, here they are. Do the sniping stuff again. <laughs> um, Before I forget... And, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to cut you off. If you, I can say this later if you want. Um, but I had a couple other thoughts. I heard that you've mentioned a few times about foreclosure cases, and um, for those who, I mean, you mentioned SOA, you know, like Regulation Z's re- refusal of offer of contract. You could also have an equivalent notice and claim of a counter demand, or right. what's commonly called a VCD, right? And you could also have a notice and claim of a, in the nature of a law and order regarding that notice of levy. And, th- and there are different ways to swing that. You know, you, you can do, like you're saying, that the jurisdiction, you've got to hit first. The challenge to authority, you could have a verified notice and claim for a demand of authority in the nature of a quo waranto. Waranto. W-A-R, warranto. It's like a warrant. Exactly. Um, and so whether it's for debt, like a bond for the discharge uh, or a chargeback, uh, you could have the, the withholding certificate requirement. So a notice and claim to require of them in the nature of that same quo warranto. 
to get back from them the if it's a tax issue, the withholding exemption certificate, or the W four termination, yeah, or the SSN refusal. Like if yeah. you start a job without divulging a social security number, the SSN refusal uh, notice and claim of the in the nature of having a verified notice and demand for authority in the nature of a qualanto. Hell, that's a long title, but uh, you can you can do that for the SSN refusal, the W four, the withholding exemption certificate, and and not just for uh, the other issues, like it's not just for IRS. If, if it's about a piece of evidence, right, the reason that those are powerful is because they tackle on one of the evidences that they're required to have produced. And because they failed to produce it, we are basically blasting a hole in their case. So, yes, you should probably have in there somewhere uh, a, a notice and claim for a verified notice of demand for lawful money if they're saying it's about um, money. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, even if they don't tell you, the case is about money. They're saying that you owe or that you, you know, mm -hmm. if it's not a debt per se, they're treating it as a debt. So that oh, yeah. document, cool. it will be a key thing, I promise. Whether it's for a, a credit card issue or a foreclosure issue or an IRS issue, it's over debt, I promise. So having oh, that verified, go ahead. Right, I think all that, that's great, fantastic. Real quick, uh, object and take what? Take exception, not ACC, but EXC. So Echo X-ray Charlie, Echo X-ray Charlie. Got uh, an exception, yeah. Right, uh, exactly. Take exception to, right? Take exception to the same. In other words, you're taking exception to the thing that you just got done giving. Got it. Somebody just, yeah, I got it. Somebody wanted me to type it in there, so right. I just typed it in there. Um, you know, some of what you're talking about, I, I get it, and that's all in that genre of stuff. For me, uh, here's how I look at it slightly differently, and, and, and I get what you're saying about the debt thing, and I kind of did that, but it didn't work for me, and, and I really never got it, but that doesn't mean it's not valid for the people who get that. If it's, you know, it's like I say, there's, there's a lot of gods out there because there's a lot of people, okay? And even if you have the same alleged God, even if you're looking at the same cross and you're in the same church, I guarantee no two people are looking at God the same way. So God is sufficient to create, or creator is sufficient to create a lot of gods. Well, guess what? The same thing is here. There's many ways to skin the cat. For instance, you just talked about how it's debt. So now you're going to turn around and kind of do, I want you to get together with, uh, with Julie, uh, by the way, because she really has got this thing kind of wired. She really gets it. You guys will get along really well. Um, and I support her in that, and I support you in, in what you're saying as well. In my perspective, I have a, a slight little twist on it. I'm looking at it not as debt, but I'm looking at it as an obligation. Because debt is an obligation. Some, there, there could be a I debt. I fully agree with that. I fully agree with that. So I'm looking for the obligation. I'm saying, okay, I, I, instead of trying to run around the debt, I'm going to sit there and say, hey, I'm not disagreeing. Uh, that there's that there's a debt owed. I don't know. I'm not saying whether it is or not is. It. I, how can I disagree when I don't know? I wasn't party to that contract. And Thinking of not party to that contract, you can use that exact line, and I'll, I'll shut up a half second, but I want to ta tangent that exact point. You can use that if you send a, a notice of rescission of signature on a revocation of power of attorney to whoever it is that you're getting your case. If, you're, if your case is an IRS case, you can send that to the IRS. Uh, I guarantee you, though, if you send that to the attorney general of whatever state it is, if it's a state issue, that will have an effect. You you will see I get that. I know I know that, and I agree with that. Go ahead and say it much slower, though. Sure. The, the revocation, revocation 
Okay, hold on, hold on. Start attorney. at the very, very beginning. Start at the very beginning. So I'm going to type this oh, here. Oh, I was right. A letter to... Uh, not, not letter, not letter. A notice and claim. Notice and claim hold for on, the revocation. I'm not, I'm not a fast typist. N-O-T-I-C. Giving you an idea how slow I type her. Notice and, of claim... And for revocation... For? For or of, either way. The, the subject matter is having this rescission of consent, or excuse me, uh, revocation of consent for the power of attorney vis-a-vis or by your rescission of signature. So the two key things is the rescission, rescission of your signature and the revocation of the consent for their assumption that they are the power of attorney. You can shorten that to a simple revocation of power of attorney, but you need to know that there are two distinct issues, the rescission of your signature and the revocation of the power. The rescission of the signature is what causes the revocation of the power of attorney. All right, this is what I have. Notice of claim for revocation of consent for power of attorney and rescission of signature. Okay, I would put rescission of signature a little earlier because the rescission of signature causes the revocation of power. So So it should be notice of claim. Really, the title is irrelevant because they have to look at the body and the intent. It's not so much the title I'm after, but I want here words that have sure. the essence of what you're trying to do so that I can type sure. it in there. Notice, okay. notice and claim. Notice of claim or notice and claim? I use both. I say and. I say notice and claim. No, all right, hold on. Hold on. Notice, hey, the notice, notice and claim. Of rescission, R E S. C-I-S-S-I-O-N. Oh, I know what rescission is. Oh, hold on a minute. Of, R-E-S-C-I-S-S, rescission, right? Of signature. Of signature. For revocation. Or or for? F-O-R. For revocation of consent. And then you can end that consent to either two or four power of attorney. As long as you tack it on to that power of attorney, because that's directly what it's pivoting on. Consent for or to power of attorney. Exactly. How about of? Consent of power that of attorney. That sounds great. That'll work. That'll work. All right. I like that better. Yeah. Of power of attorney. Yeah, we need to do some writing together, man. I can tell we're going to work it out. All right. That's written. That's what, let me make sure I have it. Read it back. By the way, people don't notice somebody else did it. Thank you, Jeannie. So sweet. Too bad. I'm putting mine up as well. <laughs> notice and claim. Notice and claim of rescission of signature for revocation of consent of power of attorney. Is that about right? Now, she wrote good to me. of claim and rescission of, power of signature for revocation of consent of power of attorney. So they're very close. <laughs> now, if, if you send that same document, now, I never send a group of documents in one packet. I all, Because if you send a cluster of documents in one mailing, then yeah. when they say we, we deny it for cause, they don't have to tell you which one is incorrect. So if you send them a separate mailing, they have to say, well, we denied that mailing, right? So if, for example, let's say that you sent them um, a verified notice and claim of constructive trust. Let's say you already created a trust and you want to merge the title into that trust. Well, I think disagree with that because there's something about your trust that they didn't like or maybe they didn't get it in time, but 
their their goal is to try to throw out your revocation of power of attorney. So they'll just say, we're rejecting that mailing because of time, right? But if it's set in different dates, if the different documents we're discussing are sent in different dates, even if they're only a single day off, then they can't say that. They can't throw it out. See what I mean? Right, so right, right. Get it, I got you. get it in time, but send them on different dates, even if it's literally the very next day or the very day before. Um, similarly, you could send to them a notice of non-resident private status, right? So you could even say private non-resident status because you don't want them to assume that the non has anything to do with private. You want to be private. Because, again, what we were talking about earlier with, with the public U.S. citizen, sending them a verified notice and claim of a private non-resident status is itself, if it's, if it's properly done, mailed to them in time, that by itself can shut down the whole case because it, it nips in the bud their assumption that you are that public U.S. citizen. Mm. So it has been very useful to me. I and, agree, and, 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 and I think uh, what we'll have to do is we'll probably here's what's going to have to happen. I think what you and I have to do is a call and maybe have a third person on here who understands more of what you're talking about uh, um, and, and more stuff where we can actually send documents back and forth and we can read them back and forth. And then we could, we could record a call privately and then we can share it with people. Uh, because I think, and I'm trying to be rude, but a lot of what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. It's good stuff. But I would actually call it somewhat more advanced. You know, it's for the advanced people who really get their handle. I'm trying to help the average everyday man or woman who doesn't have time to even get their head wrapped around it enough to sufficiently do it and just get them to 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 to, to put something together to make their record. Not that this stuff is not fantastic, and and hopefully between the two of us we can actually put together what I call uh, 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 templates for people to use, kind of thing. But eventually, you're going to have to get your head wrapped around it so people, you know, they're really going to have to do that. And we need to teach it. And um, so let's work together on doing that, uh, particularly if it gets to the end goal that we're looking for. And in my situation, remember, I'm looking to cause uh, the demise of those that are engaged in these criminal acts. That's, that's my goal, is to cause the demise of the corruption of the offices themselves, because, as I said, it is quite clear that each and every one of them independently swears an oath to support the Constitution, yet they don't know one word of it. And I don't know if you've been on any other show, but let me share this with you, and then we've got to go. Um, this is uh, my first of yours, actually. Huh? This is my first show with you, actually. Oh, excellent. Well, this is my solution. Tell me what you think, uh, either in this show or another show. I want you to think about it, actually, and without commenting first. Uh, we'll have you back on next 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 week, or I want to talk to you between now and then. Give me, let me give you my my email address. You ready? Please follow me. Follow me. Truthmonger. Tell the truth. T R U T H. M is in Mary. O is in Oscar. G is in George. E is in Edward. R is in Richter. Monger. The number six. That's squiggly little line. So it's Truthmonger six at gmail dot com. Did you get that? Okay. Yep. Just in case something fails, write down Irish, like the common I-R-I-S-H, and Lakota, like the people who are being screwed right out in the middle of the country. L-A-K. Negative. L-A-K. That's Lima Alpha Kilo. Right. Oscar Tango Alpha Lakota. At 
at yahoo.com. That's at yahoo. That's right, at yahoo.com. Yahoo! Yeah, I got I got away from Yahoo. They were corrupting my uh, computer every single time. Um, okay, so that's good. So let's communicate. Uh, what was I getting at? Um, oh, here's the solution. Very simple solution, I believe, will change everything if we can get people to do this. We already have it in law. All right, the Constitution, Article 6, says the following. This Constitution, now I know it by heart, but I want to make sure I read it properly. So I'm going to actually pull this up this time. Come on, Constitution, where are you? All right. Oh, here's the one I was mentioning before for the people paying attention. Article 4, full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state. And the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved and the effects thereof. Okay, so I just want to mention that. Hold on, let me get to it. I'm getting there. Article 6, here it is. This Constitution, not some other Constitution, and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, semicolon, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, comma, any space, capital T, thing, anything, in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. To the contrary of what? To the contrary of the principles expressed in the unanimous Declaration of Independence which is that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it's the right of the people to alter or abolish it. And that's prime facie right there. Now, let me continue. Section 3. The senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures, the ones that makes the laws of the states, and all executive and all judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. Now, that's part of their oath. Now, as it says in, in the case I... Uh, don't have it at my fingertips right this minute, but I have it somewhere else. In a case where it says that no officer, no agent can war against the Constitution, or do anything that is in contravention of the Constitution, without first violating his undertaking to support it. It's beautiful. They worded it perfectly. What does that mean, undertaking? Undertaking means not only have a fiduciary duty, but he has a duty obligation because of his sworn oath or affirmation to support it. Now, I think we can all agree you cannot support something if you do not know what it says. Now, I'm going to share with you the principle of this, where this comes from. What I discovered over a long period of time was that people are supposed to have a conscience. I've been down to St. Mary's. I went to St. Mary's College, and there's the conscience statue right there because St. Mary's is one of the first settlements. And the, the key is that's why we know that we are self-governing according to our own conscience. And as I've mentioned before in Hale versus Single, so long as we do not trust, he owes no duty to the public so long as he does not trespass upon their rights. So that is the, 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 it's right there in law, it's right there in case law. 
Uh, and so the consciousness, these entities don't have conscience. That's why they're required to have statutes, codes, regulations, and so on. And a government has no conscience, and so that's why it's meant to be governed, unlike the people that are not to be governed because they're self-governing. So this is very simple stuff. I want to lay it out there now. A conscience, unfortunately, generally, particularly as we get more and more away from our spirit, more and more away from our creator, consciousness becomes more and more faint. But the easy way that the bankers figured out for the average uh, American is to basically eliminate the effect of the conscience, and here's why, or here's how. If I have two apples, I have an apple in the right hand, an apple in the left hand, what can you choose? The only thing you can choose is an apple. That's why they have taken over all of the media. Because if you go to this media, that media, or this media, they're all controlled by them. So you have no choice. But the moment that I put an orange or a pear or something else in this other hand, you now have a choice. So if I put lies in the right hand, lies in the left hand, what can you choose? What is it everyone says at the, when they vote for president? Well, you've got to choose the lesser of two evils. What? I object, and what was that term you said? And take what? Exception. To exactly. That. Because why should I choose evil? I don't want to choose lesser of evil, because if you choose the lesser of two evils, you still end up with evil. It makes no sense. Exactly. So I don't agree with that. So here's what I'm, what I'm getting at, is that we already have the law in place. It's already here. What we're looking for is an acting clause, which is the following, which is what I want to get in, and we can do this by petition. We don't need the legislation to do it, the legislature to do it for us. We can do it, or you can force the legislature to do it by petition. And that is a simple enacting clause that provides that there shall be periodic testing, namely every six months, for every officer and agent that is paid or otherwise uh, compensated by any form of government to be periodically tested as to their knowledge. Knowledge, and it's defined as memorizing. Knowledge, understanding, and accurate use. Now, this comes from any officer who has a weapon. He's required to be periodically tested as to knowledge, understanding, can take it apart, put it together, clean it, and also how it fires and to be tested at a target that he can hit the target within certain parameters in order for him to wear that weapon. And yet he never uses it. Yet he puts on the uniform, which is the law, every day and hasn't a clue. So I want to flip-flop that. I want to say the same requirements that you have for that weapon, I want you to be periodically tested as to your knowledge, understanding, and accurate use of the law itself, which you sworn an oath to, which is the Constitution, which is the principles of the Constitution, which, which all forms of government are subject to, is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. So you have to memorize the following. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, Driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Who is the governed? Them. Not you or me. We're not governed. They are the ones who choose. They volunteer to govern, and that's why we grant them these li limited powers. That's why it's called uh, the deriving their just powers. They're just because they said, you know what, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to be at service. And so we give them those special powers because they are, in fact, doing something and allowing themselves to be governed by these laws and rules, unlike the rest of who are self-governing. 
that whenever any form of government becomes destructive, these ends it's the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers. So there you go, the powers organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and their smiley face again, happiness. Now, in or, that is the essence of everything. That is the mission statement of all forms of government. It also clearly lays out who is the creator, who's the grantor, who's the maker, who's the beneficiary here, and who and what is it what is their duty? What is the ultimate duty? What is the purpose of all forms of government? That lays it out. They need to memorize that. They need to memorize as much or more than what I know. The sixth article of the Constitution, the one that they swore an oath to. If they're a judge, they need to know Article One, Section uh, excuse me, Article Three, Section One, which says that the judges, both the Supreme and the Fear of Court, shall be bound by oath shall, excuse me, uh, shall hold their office during good behavior, which means anything less than good behavior, and they're not holding the office, which means they're an impersonator, right? Or an imposter. These things are very simple. They need to memorize. They need to know. And if they don't know it, then they can't support it. This is pretty simple stuff. Okay? So I think once we enact legislation which requires them to fulfill these already requirements that are already here, everything is going to change because now these people will know, which they don't know now, they don't know the law. They don't know the Constitution. They don't know the United, They don't know the president. Nothing. They only know what their supervisors told them and what they've been told to do. Well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, now we're going to show them. Now they have a choice. Oh, crap. I can't do this because I already know. I've memorized. I've taken tests. I'm not allowed to do that. Wait a minute. I'm, just, I'm here to protect the people, and I'm just about ready to screw this guy over. And I want to also enact some sort of legislation uh, on the side note here where every court is required on its own before any one of the people is disturbed, okay? How can a court have authority to send a, 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 a uh, uh, what do you call it, a notice requiring you to appear without them having jurisdiction? Hey, you need to, you need to take your clothes off and stand before me. What? I, I, no, well, you have to show me what jurisdiction you have first. Jurisdiction means authority to tell me what to do. Who the hell are you? So the first thing that they have to do is verify and validate that whoever they're bringing charges against, first of all, exists and is subject to the state. That's the most important thing. If you're not subject to the state and whoever is bringing the action, are you a corporation? Are you in good standing? All those, If it's a corporation, here's why. A corporation is a creature of the state. It's a creation of the state. And as Hale Bersinkel says, all creation of the state is presumed to be for the benefit of the public. So if this creature, this corporation, this entity of the state is causing harm to somebody else by, by making false charges or false claims, it's the state that's going to be liable, which is basically why I'm going after it this way. But I think that if we could get rid of that by requiring the courts as a matter of procedure to ensure, like every cop that's on the side of the road, he pulls somebody over, first thing you should ask, are you engaged in any activity of transporting of passengers or property for compensation over the highway, yes or no? And when you say no, the only thing he should say is, well, please slow down, sir, and have a nice day. Amen. That's it. If he does not, if he does not verify and validate and authenticate that you are, in fact, an entity of the state or engaged in an activity that is subject to the state, he's got no business fucking with you. Excuse my language. <laughs> no business ever. 
Okay? He's disrupting, he's depriving you of a right or privilege secured by the Constitution laws of the United States. Period. The same thing with the courts. If they can't show that that entity exists, and they can't show that you, that, that you the man, are the fiduciary or some other agent of this entity, they got no business. The court, the clerk has no business sending anything in the mail requiring you to show up. Ain't there. And I believe that we can enact legislation that requires these very simple little things to happen that would change the whole face of things. So the first one we can act, we can cause the enactment of it the same way, which it took, I don't know, eight years, I kept telling people, eight years, for all the people who want to get pot legalized. I was like, dude, just, just get a petition together. That's all you got to do. Get enough signal. Go look at what the requirements are in your state and county, whatever, your local area. Get, a, get, a, get, a, get enough signatures on it. Make sure you get uh, at least uh, 30%. Okay, that's another thing for people to do that. Somebody's making a lot of noise. That is. Get the petition together with the right number of signatures. Always add 30%. Okay, always add 30%. Because they're gonna because there's all sorts of reasons that you want that that, that some of those signatures won't count. Get your uh, 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 the necessary signatures. Get it on the ballot. At least fit, I found out 50% of the states, at least 50% of the states have the ability for people to simply put together a petition, get enough signatures, it'll go on the ballot, the ballot, and the people vote on it. And that's exactly what they did finally in California and some other states too. They just put it on the ballot. Hey, we're voting. Now the feds still try to come into the state and say, oh, you can't have that because it's a controlled substance. But the state signature says, uh-uh, you ain't got no business here. We're not engaged in any commercial here, commerce here. Now, you could go to the federal government and say, hey, they're depriving my right to smoke pot in my own private house. That's depriving me of a right. Now, that would really put the feds in a real quandary, wouldn't it? On the one hand, they have to, they, the reason why they exist is to secure your rights. They have an obligation to do that from involuntary servitude. And yet, they're saying that having this controlled substance uh, is, unlaw- is illegal or unlawful, however they want to put it. So that, I think that would be a lot of fun just to do that, just to really tie their asses up in a knot and go, well, which way is it? Because it's going to expose their fraud. And, of course, my favorite, if anyone hasn't heard it, because I'm kind of on the downside of this um, this call tonight, one of the funnest things I love to do is to sit there and go, okay, you're claiming that I was in possession, or this person, this man, rather, this man or woman was in possession of a controlled substance. Is that correct? Yes. What's the problem? Well, he can't. I said, well, wait a minute. You just said it's a controlled substance, right? Yes. And you just testified that he was in possession, right? Yes. So he was in control of it, right? Uh, yeah. So a controlled substance was being controlled. What's the problem? Now, surely if the state or the federal government, whatever, can control a substance, then that means that the people must have had the power to grant control of something that they already had control of. So once again, just because you grant power, limited power to an entity does not divest you of the same power or right, does it? No. So people wrap, you know, try to end the show here in a minute. Uh, Wrap your head around that a little bit see where we're at. But again, I'm very serious that I really think we need to get institute legislation 
that requires um, an enactment of what's already law, and that is for all of the officers, agents, office holders, any one of them, anyone getting a paycheck, any contract, whatever, with any government entity or agency that's related to it, and that includes the subcontractors. You can do any work whatsoever, and you need to know who you're doing the work for and why. What is, the, what is the end result? What is the end purpose? What is the mission statement of the trust of which everything comes under? And you'll love this. If you go look at the unanimous declaration of the 13 United, lowercase United, States of America, it also continues to say, in Congress assembled. It was the first act of Congress assembled. And that's why it created a trust. And all forms of government are subject to the principles of that trust. It says so right there. And we can, we've done shows before. We can do a whole show on trust law. that They can't breach trust law. They're actually the trustees. We're the grantors and the beneficiaries. So that's my little ditty for tonight. Think about it. Uh, I will send you an email if you don't send me one first. That was and I appreciate it. I look forward to talking with you, brother, and we'll just uh, we'll probably have a real big hash out tonight's not a good night for me. <laughs> okay, I've got that's fine. too much too much going on. I'm I'm exhausted already. I've got a lot of cases. This one case I got drawn back into is a um, involuntary manslaughter. Real sad story. A child was run over by somebody going too fast and, and driving recklessly, but unfortunately the teenager who was driving as well as his girlfriend who were both underage are, shall we say, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Influential. Their parents are influential. And as a result, there was no proper uh, forensics done until late. Um, wow. So I'm trying to help the parents out to get something out of this. The attorney that we have on it actually is a pretty decent woman. Uh, I met her through one of uh, the shows, Ama. I don't know if you know Ama or whatever. Um, and she's going after the insurance company first. And when I started suggesting these other aspects, she like sat up in her chair and was like, wow, that's, that's a really good idea. I've never heard of that before, but that makes a lot of sense. So like, okay. So, yeah, that, and that, that's emotional. It's really emotional. I, I'm sure you can imagine. You're on the phone, and they're describing to you the details of it, and they're, you know. Sure. You know, so it, it tears me apart, too. And, of course, the oh. people that, you know, still losing their homes and bullshit. Oh, I wanted to mention this to somebody who I know either is listening or will listen to the recording. They, Cheyenne, is another one. Cheyenne, if you're listening, they did not sell your house. Let me repeat, they did not sell your house. What they did was they sold a piece of paper, which is nothing less than a counterfeit instrument, to some idiot who believes it's titled to your house. Okay? That's Can why I just interject really quickly? People need to know the difference between a loan, a note, and a deed. They are not equivalent. Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. And again, I'm going to repeat. Go to your deed of trust and you will see that the deed of trust does not secure the note. Oh, by the way, if anyone doesn't know what those sound effects are, 
That is me mimicking Peanut from um, Jeff um, uh, Jeff Dunham, D-U-N-H-A-M. If you've not seen him, <laughs> you need to go see him. All right. I mean, I mean, see the videos. Unfortunately, the full video is no longer out there. But go watch the one with Peanut, and you'll see what I'm talking about. That's who I'm imitating. Goes what? That's the sound he makes when he's like, "What are you talking about?" Okay. Um, and then the other one, of course, is Neo, which is him taking his hand over his head, going Neo, which means right over your head. It went. It's hilarious. Anyway, that's that's my humor. Um, the deed of trust does not secure the note. That's correct. Does not. It secures the debt evidenced by the note. So what does it secure? The debt. What debt? Ah, here we go again. Not only do we have to establish who the plaintiff is and, or who the defendant is that they can sue and be sued, but guess what? We have to identify the debt. And until they identify the debt, the deed of trust doesn't secure anything. And it also secures the lender who the debt is allegedly owed, but it doesn't secure anything else but the debt. And this is very important to understand, because if they cannot prove that they're the lender, they not show that there's a debt, and they can't even evidence the note, the note, not a copy, not a copy of a copy, by the way, for people who do not know the difference, as I went to evidence last show, listen to that show, but I'll give you a little hint. A copy of a copy is not a true copy. In other words, if they get a copy off of the land records, from mirrors, or any other form, it's a copy of a copy, which is generally a forgery. Particularly if it's full size, it is considered a forgery. Okay. A copy of the original means that they took it as the note. So let's go back to the note. The lender or anyone who takes this note by transfer that's telling you the only way that anyone can take this note. It must be taken. That's a legal term. Which means you take receipt, you take obligations and duties thereof and liability. Okay? Take it by transfer. Clearly excluding all other forms. It shall be taken by transfer. Now, I've gone to this. I'll do it real quick again since we have a little bit of time left. The difference between assignment and transfer. You can assign a right. You transfer duties because somebody has to accept the duties. Somebody has to accept the responsibility. That's why an assignment, because the note itself is a conditional instrument, has duties of both sides. So, therefore, it can only be taken by transfer. And, ooh, wait a minute, I'm not done? No. What does the note say? And is entitled to payments under the note. Well, who's entitled to payments under the note? The note holder. That's why it says the lender or anyone who takes this note by transfer and is entitled to payments under the note shall be called the note holder. Notice they never come in as the note holder. So once again, they're not coming in in the capacity Right? They're not coming in in the capacity that the note allows or requires or provides. Remember, you provided all of this. It's your signature that provided everything that's in that note. It's your signature that provided everything in the deed of trust. Of course, my question is, since there's clearly obligations and duties on the other side, 
Who accepted those duties, obligations, and responsibilities? I don't see any other signature on there. And I want to have a discussion with you on that one because it's going to tweak your brain. I know tonight you're going to go, hey, wait a minute, you're right. <laughs> so who took on the duties and responsibilities of the other side in order to be a party to that action, in order to be a party to that contract, in order to be a party to or, or, or an entity entitled to? Now, they claim they're the beneficiary, but the beneficiary is only named as the lender. And the lender is clearly defined as to who it is. It's not the lender and or assigned. And once again, he is only entitled if he can show the debt that's evidenced by the note. Well, the note says what? The very beginning. In return for a loan I have received. Does anybody have any evidence of a loan? If I ask any one of you out of mortgage, I ask you, did you receive anything of substance or value in your hand, in your bank account, or somebody else's bank account, or somebody else's hand on your behalf prior to you signing and delivering the note in the deed of trust? Yes or no? No. Therefore, you didn't get a loan. Look up the definition. The words are within the note itself, in return for. That should be a clue for you right there. Just like my mentor says, it should be a clue to anyone who buys a tax sale or any other property that they got a locksmith and they're breaking into a house. It should be a pretty good clue that you don't have proper title to it. If you have to break into somebody else's home, you're breaking into somebody else's home. If it's yours, then the owner will, the grantor, will give it to you, the grantor, the keys to you, the grantee. And guess what? Go look at the deed of trust. It also says that the trustee's deed shall be specifically state that it no warranty expressed or implied. Now, how do they get around that? They call it special warranty. Well, if you look up special warranty, special warranty just simply means uh, you're warranting whatever you had. Not a general warranty, which warranties against anybody who has a claim. That's a general warranty, which is what you have. They have a special warranty. So this is special. What does special mean? Special means ain't got nothing except for what he had. And he didn't have nothing, so I guess I got nothing. See how simple that is. The securities are within the instruments themselves, so please read them. Because now you know what you can enforce them on, because they're trying to enforce the deed of trust. I mean, that's what they're there for. They're in court, asking the court to please allow them to enforce the foreclosure aspect of the deed of trust. They must be entitled to foreclosure. And guess what? The, guess what? They'd be under the deed of trust. Yet they don't know the first word that it says. And you guys have heard my story where I went into court and I challenged the judge and let her know of crimes that are constable court in the United States. And then I asked her point blank, have you seen the deed of trust, which she failed to respond. The next time I came in three weeks later, I said, last time I asked you, have you seen the deed of trust? And you were silent, which indicates that you have not seen it. Now I'm asking you point blank, have you read it and the provisions therein? And what did she say? I don't see anything wrong with the paperwork. That's my answer. And I just mentioned that exact story to a public defender attorney, and she immediately got it. She says, oh, God, there you go. You got intent. I was like, yep, there you did it. Why? Her avoiding the question, that is my answer. When she said, that is my answer, shows intent for her to evade the question, which was very precise and very clear. Did you read the note, the deed of trust, and the provisions therein? Because what is it called when a judge or anybody forces you to do something that you're not obligated to do. Is that not called involuntary servitude? Yes, it is. If there is no provision in the note of deed of trust for something that the court is ordering, that's involuntary servitude, isn't it? Indeed. Well done, sir. 
Thank you. And I will leave it at that and say good night to everybody and blessings. And thank you very much, sir, for coming on. I look forward to talking to you more, which we will do. I will send you a quick email right now. And what did I do? <laughs> it looks it looks like that is a good time because the destructors and disturbers are coming in. You're welcome, Janine, and, and thank you so much, hon. I I think you're sweet and and wonderful. I I don't know why you spend any time hanging around those knuckleheads, but you know it's up to up to each one of you. Um, they're they're unfortunately I don't like hanging around negative people. So, <sighs> yes, law fan, and I'm glad to see you know I've never tried to disrespect you, law fan. By the way, I just sometimes I can meet out the wrong person. Today I think I've done pretty good. Um, and I know that you're, you know, a decent man, and you do have positive and, and good things to say, and let's let's just stay on that track, guys. I'm not right about everything. I'm just sharing my opinion my perspective. For a lot of people, all they want to do is be left alone, and I've got many opinions on that. I see no reason why you need to go to common law. Why would you want to go to common law? Why not just go to natural law, get a baseball bat, and handle it yourself? I'm being a little bit facetious, and I'm having a little fun. Uh, blessings, and everybody have a great night. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.